Hello, everybody, and welcome back to The Iron List. This is our list podcast. We do lists. My <laughs> name is William Bibiani. I am a critic for the rap. Everybody calls me Bibbs. Uh, my name is Whitney Seibold. I, too, am a critic. I write for Slash Film. Uh, don't call me a nickname. I have none. Indeed. Uh, and this is The Iron List, a monthly podcast where every single month we invite our patrons over at patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network to choose a topic for which uh, Whitney and myself will each uh, provide our own specially curated individual top ten lists. Uh, we do not run these lists by each other in advance. We, I do not know what he's going to be picking. He doesn't know what I'm going to be picking. It might be all the same things, although that's never happened. In fact, they're usually quite different. Uh, and uh, this we, we time... Have, we have very different tastes, you yeah, say. There's usually at least one overlap, I find. Uh, but not, it's usually the majority are very different. And that's one of the things I like about this show, is uh, we, we get to sort of do things... We get to go off on our own and then come back. And, like, see the efforts of each other's scavenger hunts. Right. I like it. Uh, so <laughs> this time on the Iron List, our patrons were invited to pick a year. We recently uh, carried over to 2023. And uh, we were going to do the best films of that particular year. Your options included uh, 2003, 1993, 1983, and 1973. And it was a scorcher. But the winner... That means it was close. Yes, it does. But the winner... The winner... It was 1993. Haha. Uh, <laughs> which, uh, golly, why'd you have to go with 1993? Uh, yeah, it turns out we really didn't think this one through. Uh, 1993 was maybe just before I started paying attention to cinema in earnest. Mm. Uh, when, when I was a kid, I, I wasn't one of those uh, kids who was obsessed with films from an early age. They were just something I casually absorbed from time to time. Right. I didn't. You know, there was occasionally an interesting film I sought to see and was got excited about, but I wasn't obsessed with movies. Uh, we went to the video store a lot, but I would rent the same videos. I'd rent, like, old Monty Python episodes, that kind of stuff. Nerd. Uh, uh, well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I was running Hitchcock make, movies at that age. It's fine. It's, yeah, I was also a nerd. Just, uh, I, I remember... Uh, I've, I've seen a lot of uh, interviews with critics and with filmmakers and how they were always obsessed from an early age. Uh, Steven Spielberg just made a movie about it. Oh, when he saw... Greatest Show on Earth. Greatest Show on Earth. When he was a little kid, that sort of sparked his love, and he started making movies Imagine if he'd seen a good film. uh, Yeah, imagine. (laughs) You never know what's going to spark you off. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, I didn't really start uh, delving really deep into movies until, uh, like, a few years later when I started working in a movie theater. Ah. I had access to a lot of movies for free. So, and also, like, started having conversations with other film obsessives. So, so it's never too late to start. Don't let the Fablemans convince you otherwise. No, but it's it's kind of embarrassing that I got such a late start when compared to other people who you know had better taste than me at an earlier age. As far as I'm concerned, everyone gets a late start unless you were born like before the dawn of cinema and had an opportunity to see everything. I suppose so, and you're still I, around today. Like, and you're like every 140 critic, years old. Every critic I know, even the ones who've been around for many many decades, feels like they're playing catch up. Yeah, because you, you always are. Uh, so don't worry about it. So as such, I was making this list, and the list of films. Uh, like great films that I had heard of that were uh, very highly acclaimed or on critics' top ten lists for 1993 are movies I haven't seen. Oh, no. uh, and that that list is longer than my list of runners up, even. So, oh wow! Uh, well, listen, 1993 was the 90s were a big decade for cinema in general. Mm. Uh, there was a ton of movies. Movies were being released. Like if you look at if you find like a website like I don't know like Box Office Mojo or something like that, and you can just look at the number of films that were theatrically released in any given year. 
you see the number going up really dramatically after the 80s. I and mean, yeah, it starts getting yeah. up all of a sudden. There used to be like a couple hundred movies came out every year. Kind of a lot, right? And then like by the 90s, it was like 800 movies a year. And I'm like, who has the fucking time? All in theaters, too. Well, yeah, that's I, just I, theaters. That doesn't count TV movies. Yeah, that doesn't or, count international uh, movies. That didn't get distribution over here. And, and uh, the home video market, which was also booming. There's just a lot more out there. Uh, people say uh, cinemas are coming back, and we'll see. A lot of cinemas are still closing down. Yeah. Uh, there's one near us uh, in Sherman Oaks that is going to die again. Yeah. Like, it died. And oh, then, and the uh, Mission Gen- Tiki Drive-In. And the Mission Tiki Drive-In. Which is long, a long, damn shame An institution that, that, that shut down. Sucks. So, yeah, a lot of theaters are still... Yeah, theaters are back. Uh, and by back, I mean they're still dying. So, um... <laughs> Some people are going back to see you know things like Avatar in big numbers, but uh, it, it's still not the double blasted shotgun of cinema yeah. that was uh, coming out in the mid nineteen nineties. So yeah, there was a lot uh, that came out. I was too young to see a lot of these movies, and I just didn't catch up with them. Mm. Uh, uh, for, I, inst- I... for instance, I never saw Sliver. No. I never saw Sliver. Well, you kind of gave away my number one. Ah, damn it. Sliver sucks, by the way. <laughs> That's what I come to you. Uh, Sliver, is, Sliver I, was I one of the... I never saw Sliver or Jade. Um, or, I never saw or Color of, of Night. Like, uh, all Color of Night. Uh, no, really... We did Color of Night once, remember? Oh, wait, I did, yeah. That, that, was, that still... one's terrible. Yeah, <laughs> it's a it, really was, bad it was really bad movie. It was a really bad movie. No, no, no. Like, uh, yes, Sliver... I remember Color. That's the one that, there's a snake in the mailbox in that one. That's... Yeah, yeah. Uh, Sliver was one of Sharon Stone's immediate follow-ups to Basic Instinct. Basic Instinct was the movie that shot her into stardom. She'd been working consistently for like a decade. Yeah, but Sliver, watch, watch uh, this ba- old Ellen Quartermain movie. Yeah, but like Basic Instinct was the one that was like, oh my god, she's a huge movie star. And indeed she was. Uh, and the, they put her in several kind of copycat-ish kind of movies. Not mm. exactly the same thing, but erotic thrillers. And mm. Sliver is a story of a, of a woman who moves into a fancy apartment building. And it turns out, A, there's a serial killer. And B, someone is like recording everybody in their apartments. And those two storylines, those, those two storylines may or may not be connected. Uh, it's just junk. <laughs> like it's not even fun junk. It's just but, bad. Uh, but before I start, I just this is my uh, my apologia. Films I have not seen ah. that came out in 1983. Okay, I never saw Farewell on My Concubine. Okay, I never saw Carlito's Way. Okay. I never saw The Age of Innocence. Mm. I never saw In the Name of the Father or The Secret Garden or the, or Hoshio Shen's The Puppet Master. Uh, I never saw Kika. The Almodovar movie. Oh, yeah. I haven't seen Menace to Society, no, which well, I feel is a big hole. Um, a hole. I didn't see Soderbergh's King of the Hill. Uh, I didn't see. Um, I haven't seen Rudy. You've never seen I, Rudy, which I know is like a big one. You would uh, you would probably hate Rudy. I mean, it looks insufferable, which <sighs> I haven't seen it. it it's but, one of those uh, movies that's so fucking sincere. You're like mad at it until it gets you, <laughs> but it, and it will get you, and then you'll be mad at it later. But after it's like mm. Rudy did it mm. and i'm like that probably wasn't healthy to support him on that weird <laughs> obsessive quest he was on yeah. but he did it and so i guess it's fine i never saw the joy luck club oh that's a great uh, movie I that's ne- on my runners up I'll i never saw uh, california with a k yeah i haven't seen what's love got to do with it okay um I, finally in like the last year i finally saw uh thanks to this podcast i saw the three musketeers oh the disney uh, version yeah with, uh, charlie sheen and which Kiefer sutherland uh, fine yeah okay you know inoffensive mm-hmm. until that song comes on and then i want to murder the world C- kind of the uh, proto version of pirates of the caribbean arguably mm-hmm. even better uh, i'm co- comparable i would say oliver uh, platt is doing a better version of that character than johnny depp Oliver Platt is the like. There's a lot of big stars in that one, and he was like the le- the least name on the cast, and he's doing the bit, the most yeah. work in that movie. He, that was a big breakout um, for him. Yeah. And I finally saw Tombstone for the first time. Oh, yeah. 
Uh, a lot of people love Tombstone. A lot of people love Tombstone. I'm not fond. I got really impatient with Tombstone. I want. I wanted the murder to happen earlier, just so the film would be over sooner. <laughs> That's how impatient I got with Tombstone. Yeah. Uh, and I haven't seen uh, two big favorites from like people slightly younger than me are very fond of film. The films Free Willy. Oh yeah. And The Sandlot. I haven't seen those movies. I, I can say this right uh, now. There's a few of the films that you've mentioned that I haven't seen. I don't think any of the ones that you have made my top ten. Okay. That that are and they're movies I like, mm. but I I didn't put them in my top yeah, ten. I, so, so I'm more, I'm more familiar with films that I saw at the time when I was a kid. Yeah. And so I I had to eschew like Sonatine or The Scent of Green Papaya for you know, like Stuart Gordon movies and stuff right. like that. Well, I had a, I had an interesting thing as well because I, I was watching movies pretty religiously mm. at the time. But there are some movies that I haven't seen, and there are also some movies that I haven't seen since they came out. Uh huh. As much as I love them, uh, and I and I cherish those memories, I haven't seen them recently enough that I feel comfortable, like promoting them. Mm. I'll give you a few right now. Uh, Thirty-two short films about Glenn Gould. Okay, uh, amazing movie as I recall, but I haven't sat down and watched it in, in a long, long time. The Piano. I haven't sat down and watched that since it came out. Uh, Judgment Night. It was a fun thriller. I had one of the best soundtracks of the 90s. Seriously, <laughs> listen to it. It's fucking awesome. So, uh, but, uh, yeah. Anthrax and Public Enemy. Like, yeah, it was all heavy metal bands and hip-hop acts hip -hop working and, together and metal, playing each yeah, track. Yeah, yeah. It was pretty cool. Yeah. Um, yeah, some weirder films like Wilder Napalm. Uh, <laughs> uh, I've not seen Wilder Napalm. Yeah, I, was, I saw it when it came out. I dug it. Mm. Haven't seen it since. Can't honestly, uh, can't pick it with, with good conscience. And a few things I haven't seen. But... On that note, we're just going to dive right in. Again, the only criteria here is that they had to come out in 1993. Uh, and the big thing that we do in our top 10 list that, to the best of my knowledge, most other people don't do, is we don't really worry about rankings. Mm. These are all movies we highly recommend you see. That's, that's just that. Uh, the only difference is that our number one is our number one. If we only had one movie to pick, we would pick that as our number one. So, on that note... Whitney Seibold. Yes. Where would you like to begin? You start us off. Uh, let me let me start with something a little bit heavy, and this one was almost my number one, but oh, yeah. uh, I'll just sort of charge her the gate with Mike Lee's Naked. Ah, uh, a nudist film. No, it's uh, no, it is. Well, I mean, there's nudity in it, but yeah, it's, there it's, is. It's like the most miserable nudity. Yeah, possible. it is. That's that's that, uh, anything else would ruin it for me. <laughs> <laughs> I've never seen Naked. Oh, okay. okay. <laughs> I like it depressing. Woo! Um, yeah, Mike, you know uh, the filmmaker Mike Lee. He uh, Oh, yeah, Mike. I, I know him. I, I'm addressing you and our potential listeners. Sorry. Mike Lee is a famous <laughs> filmmaker. Uh, <laughs> Mike, uh, Mike Lee uh, ten, tends to make movies in sort of an improvisational <coughs> theatrical manner. He works in theater. Uh, so what he does is he gathers actors to sort of invent characters with them based on their ideas and based on who they are and sort of improvise scenes and the screenplay comes out of that. Yeah. Uh, and naked, uh, David Thewlis plays the main character in naked. He plays yeah. a character named Johnny, I think John and, naked. Uh, pardon? John naked. Johnny naked. Is that's, his a, name. that's his name. Th there's nothing lightweight about this movie. Okay. So. <laughs> then then <laughs> I'm it. So you're, 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 you're jokes I'm the are only one. Inappropriate. I'm uh, the only one. Um, no, uh, he's, He's like the the most horrendously miserable character. He is a, an, an offensive criminal who doesn't really seem to have a place to go. He has no job. In fact, nobody really seems to have jobs in this. Nobody seems to have any kind of 
relationships or connections to a greater world. They're just sort of alone at the bottom of a pit. And uh, yeah, Johnny is seen committing acts of sexual assault and theft. Uh, when he talks to people, he berates them and tries to become like intellectually superior. There's this uh, sequence in the middle where he's talking to a security guard. And the security guard's like really trying to engage with his ideas. And you can tell that he's just trying to work his way uh, into like a way to sort of insult this guy and prove his intellectual superiority. Mm. This character is convinced of his superiority when he's just horrendous and does these horrible things. Yeah. And there's other horrendous people besides he goes to, uh, tries to move in with an old girlfriend. They have really emotionally damaging sex. Oh. Uh, Again. Yeah. Best kind. The, uh, there's a, a really horrendous, uh, landlord who comes up and also assaults the, assaults the women in the apartment. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, these people seem really sort of separated from one another and it is, bleak and fascinating to traverse this gray, horrible world with these people who have essentially lost all hope. This, this is a a world without light in it. And, and indeed Mike Lee films everything without sort of color. He films like the, the drabbest parts of London and films down is really like the filthiest possible streets. And you're still, drawn in you're still really fascinated by these characters and by the sort of the misery they're going through because you're you understand that mike lee is like looking and saying that these people like there's a life somewhere in here Mm. it's not a hopeful life it's not a good life there's maybe the last light of feeling is dying out and that's a fascinating process to witness really and you like this movie i do i like it a lot you 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 enjoy it you're like watching this with a big old grin on your face uh, maybe not a grin, but you know, okay. l- like I said, I'm fascinated. I'm, yeah. I'm looking in. I'm you know, getting getting my own face dirty, and that that can be exhilarating. Listen, I'm I'm no one to judge. At least one of the movies on my list is also a great a great big bummer. But um, <laughs> I got a couple bummers on my list, but yeah, I got that, some fun ones that, too. That's a very Whitney film. <laughs> it's a Mike Lee film, it's a, and it's yeah. a very Whitney film. Yeah. He was he was Mike Lee was like, you know what, that guy Whitney's gonna like someday. I was, I was a teenager David at the time. David Thewlis being miserable. Yeah. <laughs> He's going to love that shit. Um, now I say this with love because I know mm-hmm. the kinds of movies you like. Yeah. Um, that, 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 that's, that, that's not on my list. Not just because I didn't see it, but also because, no. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, by the way, real fast, just in case anyone's wondering, uh, I can't, I'm coming off of a bit of a cold. Not, oh, not, right. not, not the plague, but they had a bit of a cold. And I'm just a little... Still a little congested and scratchy, so if I cough a bit, that, that that's what's going on. I'm fine, yeah. and, and I'm not sick anymore. It's just residual. Um, all right, I'm going to do a complete 180 on your shit. All right, uh, and that's not to say it's shit. I'm just like your 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 shenanigans are the complete opposite of my shenanigans, and I'm going to go with a film by honestly a dramatically underrated filmmaker, a filmmaker who every time he's made a movie, I'm like that is my jam. Right there, and most people don't like it, or they don't get it, and I think it's fucking awesome every time. Hmm. His name is Bob Balaban. Okay, and he directed a comedy called My Boyfriend's Back. Oh, I haven't seen My Boyfriend's Back. My Boyfriend's Back is absolutely wonderful, and nobody liked it, and I know why. Uh, My Boyfriend's <laughs> Back uh, is a teen comedy uh, about uh, a young teenager named Johnny Dingle who is in love with the cutest girl in school. And uh, 
She doesn't know him. She doesn't care about him. He's nobody. He's not popular. It's one of those types of movies. Uh, but he's working at a convenience store when there's a robbery, and he dives in front of a bullet for her. And as he's dying in her arms, he's like, "Is there?" I, she, she's like, "Is there anything I can do?" He's like, "Yeah, there's just one thing. Would you go to prom with me?" And she look at this dying kid who just died for her. She's like, "Sure." Yeah, I'll go to prom with you. Like in a Vietnam movie, like, sure, we'll go to Disneyland. Everything's fine. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <clears throat> he dies. He goes to heaven, and they were trying to check him in. And he's like, I'm not going to heaven. I have a date. So he runs back, but he's a zombie. <laughs> and the gravedigger is like, you got to stay here, man. They don't really like zombies out there. But it turns out he's too committed he's too motivated he's gonna run out there and he's gonna go back to school he's gonna date this girl who's going to prom with him she is a a little a little freaked out by the zombie thing and b she was just being polite and now she feels obligated to go out on a couple of dates with this guy while the assholes in school played by a very young philip seymour hoffman and matthew mcconaughey and matthew fox uh, uh. Are are really against having zombies in the school, and it turns into this weird bigotry thing. Uh, and but it also, 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 it turns out that the only way for him to halt uh, the putrefaction process, like his uh. ears are literally falling off of his head, the only way to halt it is to eat people. All right, and he doesn't want to do that because he's a good kid. Mm. But wouldn't you know it? One of them tried to kill him because he's a zombie and ended up with an axe in his head. And I'm not just going to let that go to waste. (laughs) So he's eating people. It's really awkward. People don't know what to make of it. His parents are weirdly supportive of him and are kidnapping people from the supermarket and like putting them on trays with apples in their mouths. And he's like, no, go home. And they go home. Fucking weird movie. (laughs) It's so fucking droll the is, entire is, thing it's uh, unbelievably silly i love mark, it mark Rylance there with a, no. a ponytail that he's made himself no, like i wish he's got a weird accent i finally saw bones and all i really out. liked bones and all by the way uh but uh <laughs> bones and all is a kind of a hoot that's a weird fucking yeah. film and i liked it a lot it wouldn't have made my top 10 but it's really really good um but no my boyfriend's back it's kind of an unsung film like people yeah. it, it's it's definitely not for all senses of humor y- you heard what i just described it's fucking weird hmm. but it's got the right tone. It understands yeah. how to make that funny for people who will find that funny. And if you find that kind of thing funny, you're going to laugh your butt off. Mm. And I really just think it's charming and odd in a way that, like, cause I, I almost put um, Adam Stanley Values on my list. I don't know if you put it on uh, yours. But mm. uh, I, it, it's a movie that I absolutely love. But it's not the only movie of its kind. And there were other weird, whimsically morbid comedies out there. And yeah. this, is, this happens to be one of my I, favorites. I, and I really I, like uh, it. I feel like uh, the in the 1980s, like in the mid-80s, yeah. uh, something cracked open in sort of like mainstream popular entertainment uh, when really strange artists were able to sort of thrive in, in the mainstream. Uh, Dave, well, David Lynch, yeah. you also have uh, Tim Burton. Yep. Uh, Terry Gilliam. Yeah, Terry. Yeah, these yeah. really, really odd, stylish filmmakers who were raised on like the same kind of adventure films, but thought no that like they were looking through them like a, a little bit of a bent prism. And I think Bob Balaban is definitely one of those people. Bob Balaban did a wonderful movie uh, in 1989 called Parents, yeah, which I really really like. Uh, and so yeah, all these sort of strange movies slipped in. A lot of them uh, gained sort of a, a mass audience, which is the yeah. m- more baffling thing. How did Edward Scissorhands become a hit? Uh, 
Meanwhile, some other one things sort of stayed in the side. I've, I discovered a film recently called uh, Meet the Hollowheads. Oh, I've um, heard of that. Yeah, with John Glover. And it, it takes place uh, in this sort of like bent 1950s retro futurist place, yeah. uh, which, you know, kind of like in a Terry Gilliam film, it's all like in a cave underground, but it looks like a 1950s kitchen. Yeah. And there's all these weird tubes and pipes coming in and out of it. And uh, John Glover's boss is coming over and he has to impress the boss, but they have to do things like feed the monster. And there's like creatures that live in the pipes that they use as tools. It's a very strange movie. Yeah. Uh, I think it was Anne Ramsey's last movie. Oh, interesting. And, yeah. uh, that sounds know. to me like a little bit like the title helps as well meet the apple gates yeah which is one yeah. of the weirdest fucking mainstream comedies anyone's ever attempted to make even if it wasn't mainstream at all uh, it, it's also kind of horrible it's absolutely <laughs> horrifying it's legitimately terrifying it's about a group of gigantic praying mantises that put on human skin and try to impersonate the most normal american family so that they can destroy us all because after the nuclear apocalypse only bugs will survive so one second don't take it off uh, the bookshelf they're, buddy. they're trying to yeah meet the apple gates they're trying to bring about the 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 apocalypse they're like breaking into nuclear plants and stuff but they look like a 1950s house uh, like just domestic unit uh and they don't put on human skins they like have the power to mutate they're like sh- shapeshifters right but at some point but they it, actually uh, take off the skins well they they it's all like gross they occasionally like yeah lose Shed control them. and they turn into like these gigantic bugs but yeah. in being human all of a sudden they're tempted by human vices yeah and they all start having sex a lot. Yeah, doing with drugs humans and, and doing yeah, doing a lot of drugs. Oh, and, it's so so the, seedy and gross. It's, it's really a sick movie. I'd I'd like to watch it again just to see if like it yeah. is like gross as gross as I remember. Sadly, it came out in 1990 and it doesn't count. For that. Uh, but in any case, what's your but, next pick? My my point is there was a whole wave of those things. Uh, speaking of which, uh, I'm going to talk about Freaked for a second. I knew you would. Yeah, I I, I I'm going to mention this one early on because this is a, a favorite of I'm a, mine. I'm a little surprised it's not your number one it's not my number one there's better movies but uh are there maybe not (laughs) maybe freaked is kind of the one of the pinnacles of cinema we peaked it's been nothing but downhill ever since uh alex winter who uh previously better known as an actor he played bill in the bill and ted movie that was sort of his big claim to fame and now he's better Uh, known as a documentarian yeah, he made a, that documentary about Zappa. He's make, working on another music documentary now. He, he's, um, he finished a documentary I saw it at a festival last year. It hasn't come out yet about the about the history of YouTube. Oh, and wow. how it started okay. off as this kind of like innocent, well, maybe not innocent, but like this this kind of just like neutral thing. Like, mm. what if we put videos online mm. and then it you turned too, into a, your videos, and yeah. then it turned into a horrible monster as soon as they started monetizing it, and yeah. that's why we have fascism now. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's really. Well, I mean, not not entirely, no, but like but it I, lays a lot of the blame at YouTube's yeah. feet. And yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty heady stuff. It sounds great. Did, did it is, see, it's good. Did, did you see that documentary "Feels Good Man" mm. about uh, the the creator of Pepe the Frog? I heard about like it. The actual no, cartoonist. They, yeah. they talked to him, and it's sort of about the whole phenomenon of how it got completely the, taken yeah, away the from fascists him. Fascists like stole his comic from him. Yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, Alex Winter, very interesting guy, and Freaked is proof positive that he's a really interesting guy because he made this incredibly strange comedy in 1993. Um, and this came out sort of in the wake of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. So the idea of mutants was everywhere. And the plot of the movie, uh, Alex Winter stars in it. He plays a former child star who is paid a lot of money to go to a distant country to be the advertising spokesman for this illegal brand of fertilizer. Yeah. It turns out the fertilizer... Uh, is a mutagen. Is, is a, yeah, it's a mutagen. And... Uh, a character named Elijah C. Skuggs played by Randy Quaid. Back when he was funny. Ba- yeah, yeah. Ba- 
back before he was started yeah. doing uh, his YouTube videos. Academy Award nominee yeah. Randy Quaid. That's right. That was for the last picture. Or um, it was um, Paper Moon. Yeah, it was it was Paper Moon. I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, other Peter Bogdanovich movie. Yeah. Uh, he uh, so <laughs> this uh, tycoon. This uh, sorry, no, it was the last detail. Oh, it was the last detail. Yeah, uh, not not uh, cuss. Yeah, it was a Hal Ashby movie. Excuse so. me, I, I am all all wrong. All I'm wrong. glad I checked. But Randy Quaid uses this mutagen on uh, on Alex Passers Winter by. and is yeah anybody who wanders into his off the beaten path freak show, he runs like sort of a circus sideshow. This, yeah. and uh, he's a been using, using mutagens. Now the mutagens turn them into these big sort of uh, rat fink looking Robert Williams painting like yeah. characters. They're all big and cartoony uh, effects. Uh, realized by the wonderful Screaming Mad George. Honestly, uh, maybe the greatest vision, like makeup effects artist we've ever had. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm, uh, I'm saying that knowing damn well Rick Baker and Stan Winston exist. Screen, imagine yeah. if, if Rick Baker and Stan Winston like did a lot of acid. <laughs> yeah. That, that's Screaming Mad George. Yeah, so, um, yeah. his, his two companions get fused together. Uh, he uh, gets half of his body turned into this big green scaly monster thing. Uh, and no, the other half of him is kind of normal. Is, lo- like imagine if like Two Face, if the gross part of Two Face was like three times bigger than the rest of Two Face. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's and, and, and it's, it's really. this really elaborate makeup job. It's his huge. teeth go into his like his actual yeah. mouth. There's drool on his chin. That's Alex Winter's actual drool because yeah. he couldn't close his mouth oh, with, so because great. of the makeup of Lance. So it's, <laughs> it's so gross. It's so gross. And uh, and he is thrown into the uh, the outhouse of this. Uh, uh, freak show yeah. out on the middle of nowhere. Which the inside which course, is gigantic. The inside is gigantic. It's like good uh, use of the uh, space. I learned it all from Bob Vila. And wouldn't you know? It, there's Bob Vila. <laughs> Hilarious bit where uh, he meets all the other freaks who live there, and uh, they all give their backstories. Yeah. Uh, Mr. T is there. Yeah, uh-huh. he plays the bearded lady. The bearded lady, and he likes being this way. Yeah, He's like the fact, one freak, yeah. who, one, I, one I, freak who's actually like, the, I, the, this is I, who I, I am. am. I am woman and I like me. I, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, that yeah. that part's actually kind of awesome. No. Then there's a then there's a really 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 terrifying uh, a flashback from a wrench. <laughs> who gets turned into a hammer? Yeah, like, they're looking at all of a sudden. Just, the camera fun, just pans over to a hammer. One of the funniest gags in the movie is the flashback from the wrench, and then just Randy uh, Quaid is at a hardware store and he buys a hammer. He's going, <laughs> and then it cuts to this the hammer, and everybody's yeah. crying. Uh, there's uh, a really wonderful makeup job on the the human worm. Oh, uh, that's it's got a like, one, kind man. of like some servos in the tail. Uh, there's a guy who can't stop farting fire. Uh, yeah. There's a guy with a nose for a face. Uh, yeah. Bob Goldthwait plays the voice of a guy with a sock puppet for a head. Yeah. Uh, this is all real. Yeah. This, this is a real movie. And, yeah, it's uh, a real documentary. And uh, Oh, and don't forget Keanu Reeves as Ortiz the oh, Dog Boy. Well, I was going to say, there's there's Ortiz the Dog Boy, played by an uncredited and unrecognizable Keanu Reeves. You can tell it's him. Uh, kind of, he's, <laughs> he's not, he's not the greatest actor. No, he's not, no, no. He's not a chameleon even when he is covered head to toe in dog fur. <laughs> Uh, there's there's an escape attempt late in the movie where they all dress as milkmen. Yes, <laughs> twelve twelve milkmen is theoretically possible. Thirteen is silly. This is a a very strange slapstick farce yeah. of the highest order. Uh, it it's weird and energetic. It doesn't stop going. It's incredibly breathless. It has kind of a punk rock sensibility. It, it's a cult it, film yeah. in the best way, I think, in yeah, a way that actually feels kind of naughty and 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 and, hmm. and like untoward, but not really. It's too innocent for that. Like it's, it's, it's definitely... not like hard. It's not hard edged R. In fact, they had to cut a few ribald jokes to, yeah. to get the PG thirteen rating. Uh, 
Yeah. Uh, but but it's but it's still it's gross and it's unapologetic it's, yeah. <laughs> about it. And it's it's a movie that just feels like your parents probably wouldn't be super happy with you watching it. And no. I think that's a good vibe. Yeah, your parents would hate this movie. Whoever yeah. your parents are, they'd hate this movie. Yeah, unless they're Alex Winter, I guess. Yeah. Actually, I don't know if Alex Winter has kids. I'm, I don't know. No. Uh, but yeah, uh, Freaked just, it's crass, gross, and very, very strange. And it's yeah. got a lot of really cool monsters in it. So it's right up my alley. I haven't rewatched it in a while. I, I, I rewatched it many a time. Mm. So I bet it still mostly holds up, if not entirely. But it's just one of those ones where I'm like, God, I hope it's as funny as I remember. <laughs> I really do. I haven't watched it in a while, and I was pretty confident you were going to pick it, so I didn't feel the need to put it on my list. But let's just say I 100% agree with Whitney. It's really, really funny. Yeah, yeah. But some of the jokes may not have aged well, but mostly they're pretty damn great. Yeah. 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 Uh, the uh, If you're a fan of, like, MTV in the early 1990s, it sort of came out of that. Uh, Alex Winter actually had his own sketch comedy show on uh, MTV prior to making Freaked. Uh, it was called The Idiot Box, and I've been looking for it. It has not <laughs> surfaced yet. It's not on YouTube. We'll find uh, it someday. But, but yeah, someday I'll, I'll be able to watch The Idiot Box. But yeah, there's a lot of like screaming. It's very caustic and aggressive. Yeah. Uh, everything I like in a comedy. Well, I got a couple more comedies on my list. Um, and I'm going to go to the one that is that is probably the broadest uh, outside of my boyfriend's back. Cause that's mm-hmm. doesn't get much sillier than that. Uh, and I'm actually going to go with a film that I think finally and deservedly found an appreciative audience and now while it still might not be a mainstream favorite even though it was trying to be a mainstream movie at the time uh-huh. I think nowadays people genuinely pretty much like Demolition Man <laughs> I, I did like Demolition Man Demolition uh, Man is a it's, fun film it was, it's, it's absurd but it is a very enjoyable you know, there, there was it was the early 90s the age of badass cinema was starting to wane ever hmm. so slightly well it, and, it, and it was the door was almost slammed shut on badass cinema yeah. with the failure of Last Action Hero. Well, which was the same year, which yeah, is what yeah. I was about to bring up. Films like Last Action Hero and to a different extent Demolition Man were both like the heads of that whole cinematic movement. Arnold Schwarzenegger and Sylvester Stallone trying to take the piss out of it a little bit. And I think mm. the ideas in Last Action Hero are so good. They're so mm. strong that it's really frustrating to see them implemented kind of shabbily. Yeah. Like, it's not a bad movie the way a lot of people made it out to be at the time. Like, it's well, like the worst. Like, it was no, just a, it's just... It was just a bomb. That's it, why people it, said it was bad. It was enormously unsuccessful. But mm-hmm. you watch it now, it's got some good ideas. It's not. It's hardly Schwarzenegger's worst movie by any stretch. But it just doesn't quite work. Demolition Man, on the other hand, is actually really, really fun because it's about Stallone's, like, kind of Cobra, Rambo persona being sent forward in time to a utopia that doesn't want or need him. Mm-hmm. And that that uh, fish-out-of-water element, they get a lot of great humor out of it. So Demolition Man stars uh, Sylvester Stallone as a cop in the very near future in Los Angeles. We're way past it now. I think um, it was like 2011 or something. No, 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 no. It was like, no, the, the opening is like 1996. Or something like that. Yeah, like, it's it's like a few years in the future. And like, of course, all of Los Angeles is on fire, and it looks like you know, like a bomb hit it. Like it looks, uh, it's taken a lot of cues from RoboCop. Yeah, really. uh, and uh, he's a celebrated uh, police officer, but he's called the Demolition Man because he blows everything up, uh, which you can't do that constantly, dude. Uh, and he has an arch nemesis, a master criminal played by uh, Wesley Snipes called Simon Phoenix. And in their big showdown, which is basically would have been the ending of any other movie, uh, he defeats Wesley Snipes. But what he doesn't realize is that in the process, he accidentally killed all of Simon Phoenix's hostages. 
So now they're both going to jail for doing the usual action movie shtick. But they have just invented a new form of rehabilitation where instead of going to prison, you are cryogenically frozen and they put subconscious uh, suggestions into your head to try to rid you of violent tendencies and teach you more practical, positive skills. Cut to decades later, Los Angeles is now a, uh, it's weird, it's, it's kind of a conservative utopia, but in that very nanny state kind of thing, where mm-hmm. it's like, we want we don't want anyone to swear, and we want to outlaw sex, and everyone's like super polite, and uh, it's, it's like Mr. Rogers, uh, well, th- th- it's led by a guy who Snipes refers to as an evil Mr. Rogers. Yeah. Which I think is a great way to put it. Um, This this weird sort of like L. Ron Hubbard type uh, messianic figure. Yeah. Uh, The fun parts about Demolition Man are the speculative parts. Yeah. Where we get to see like how the future is. This This, this very... very, uh, Where you're fine when you cuss. There's little machines on the walls. And if you say a swear word, a little ticket prints out. And that's a joke that plays out consistently all throughout the movie, whether or not the characters are actually like... Yeah, some, Re- some, reflecting on it. Some, some sound editor was ver- paying close attention. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, long uh, story short, Simon Phoenix is like up for parole. He kills everybody and escapes, and they have to bring out uh, Sylvester Stallone to try to catch him. And they're both kind of fascinated by just how unaction movie everything got. Mm. And there, unfortunately, is although it seems like oh everything's kind of peaceful now and everything's really chill and uh, there's no violence anywhere, there are no guns anywhere. Uh, but that has become a, a sort of a, a mask for a fascist state. Yeah, that and, and that they like need a, to take down. It's like an underground of uh, people who are very unsatisfied. And yeah, are, are le- led by Dennis Leary back when that was cool. Uh, did, did Dennis Leary lose his cool at some point? I don't think he used to be guess, super. He used to be super edgy. Now he's true. not. Yeah. That's um, true. I, so I've yeah. heard a lot of people say they liked Dennis Leary until they discovered Bill Hicks. And yeah, a lot, a lot of Dennis Leary's shtick is very similar to that. It was Hicks. the angry comic at the yeah. time. Yeah. Um, in any case, um, it's very witty. It's very funny. Uh, the, it's actually pretty screenplay. good as an action. Yeah. It's actually pretty good as an action movie, and like a lot of its ideas about the future. Some of which I wouldn't say they came true, but you you watch it and it's just like they, they were kind of close. <laughs> they had a joke about how uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger became president. Yes, and the whole and that was before he was governor. So look for a minute, like maybe we'd somehow get there. <laughs> and they even say like, yes, although he wasn't born in the United States, we passed a new constitutional amendment because he was so popular. And so Stallone's just like, shut up about that. <laughs> um, anyway, it's a really really funny movie. It's actually like pretty smartly satirical. Everyone's really really great in it. Wesley Snipes is a great villain in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just a really. As the self-aware action movies of like the '90s went, it's one of the best, and that's actually saying something. So yeah, it's great. I guess I'll go with... Uh, I don't have any science fiction films on my list. I mentioned uh, Fortress earlier. That's a oh, I love Fortress. Uh, I have Fortress almost made my list. Uh, yeah, F- Fortress is a just a, a little bit of a footnote. Um, mm. Yeah, Stuart Gordon made this dystopian prison movie uh, with Christopher Lambert and um, uh, Kurtwood Smith. Yeah. Uh, Kurtwood Smith is the evil warden of a future prison, and this future prison, they put these little th- shoot these little things into your intestines that if you step out of line, they give you a st- like a really severe they're, they're stomach They're like expand. And if you yeah. don't step back into line, they'll expand it'll and blow explode you up. and blow yeah. you up. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, Fucking gross. <laughs> and it's about, yeah, Christopher Lambert has to sort of team up with Jeffrey Combs and a bunch of other uh, prisoners to escape the fortress. It's pretty great. It's it, it's pretty, yeah, good. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, Kurtwood Smith, it turns out, is like this enhanced human who absorbs amino acids directly into his abdomen at night. Cool shit. Very cool shit. Um, 
So nothing like that, but I do have one uh, that I saw when it came out in 1993 and I was very, very fond of. Uh, it was the film that convinced me in perpetuity that Robert Downey Jr. is one of the best actors alive. Oh. And it was, and it was Heart and Souls. Heart and Souls is charming as Heart hell. Heart and Souls is a very sweet movie. Yeah. Um, I'm glad you, you know, picked this. It, yeah, like, like I said, there's a lot of greater movies that were more highly acclaimed that uh, I just haven't seen. There's nothing wrong with the film. But, uh, film. Yeah, but yeah, Heart and Souls is, is a very touching film. Uh, it's about a, a group of strangers on a bus uh, in, I think, the mid, mid to late 60s. Around there, yeah. Uh, around the year Robert Downey Jr. was born. Yeah. And uh, the uh, bus driver, played by David Paymer, uh, was ogling a young lady in another car and mm. lost control of the bus, crashed it, and everybody died. Yeah. Uh, and wouldn't you know it, their spirits exit the site of the crash and get right next to a car that was affected by the crash. Uh-huh. Little little baby was being born in there. And they're yeah. linked to this baby. Yeah. They, and they, they don't said, know why. Imagine, if you will, like they're all his guardian angel. Mm. And they're just following him around for his entire life. And when he's a kid, he can see them. Yeah. And, and they're they, like his best friends, but everyone thinks they're but imaginary. They're, they're really, they have to stay close. In fact, when he starts to walk away, like they fall over and get dragged on behind. Yeah. The ghosts and, are played by... Kira Sedgwick, Alfred Woodard, Charles Grodin, and Tom Sizemore. That's a good cast. Yeah. <laughs> That's a really and, and good da- cast. And David Paymore. And David Paymore is the bus driver who comes and, back, yeah. And the, yeah, as, as a little kid, uh, he sees the ghosts and they're his friends and he mm. likes talking with these people. They're, he's convinced they're like imaginary friends. Yeah. And he starts to be convinced by the adults around him that they're imaginary friends. Mm-hmm. He And in order and in yeah, order to give to, the kid a normal life, the ghosts decide we to need to stay go- invisible. Yeah. yeah. We're just, we, they're still was, there, but yeah. they're invisible. And then we cut to he's now an adult and they're still following him around. Uh. They're, they're still trapped there. It's kind of miserable for them. <laughs> and then David Paymer shows up in the bus and says, Hey guys, yeah, uh, I assume uh, you uh, c- worked with the kids in order to uh, uh, g- basically take care of all your unfinished business on Earth. Sorry I'm so late, but come on in. We're going to heaven. And they're like, whoa. What's this unfinished business stuff? No one ever told us anything about that. And David Hammer's like, they didn't? No, that never came up once. Oh. You've been around this guy for like 35 years? And you didn't do any of the stuff? You Okay, well, that's so, an yeah. oversight. I can give you 24 hours to try to wrap everything yeah. up. And uh, so, yeah, they each have to realize, try to figure out what it is they've been missing in their lives uh-huh. and make it right. Yeah. Uh, Tom Sizemore was a thief. And so he has to return something that he stole. Yeah. Uh, Charles Grodin was a singer who never got his big break. So they have to break onto stage at a B.B. King concert. Yeah. And B.B. King is there playing himself. Uh, Alfred Woodard um, well, was a mother. Yeah. And never to... really got to reconnect with her kid. And, but um, yeah. periodically throughout... Each of the ghosts takes turns possessing Robert Downey Jr.'s body. Yeah. Uh, not just to fulfill their own wishes, sometimes just to get him out of his scrapes. Yeah. Robert Downey Jr. does perfect impersonations of all four of those actors. Yeah, it's really good. <laughs> it's a really good movie. Yeah. It really is. It's, it's weird. It came out, and I don't remember a single person ever saying, I saw the trailer for that movie and it looked bad. Mm. Everyone always wanted to see it. And then it kind of just came and went and nobody saw it. And then it was on home video, and everyone was like, oh, that was great. Why wasn't that in theaters? It was. (laughs) I was written by Ron Underwood, who did Tremors. And Mm -hmm. he was on a bit of a streak there for a minute. And Uh, He also did something... He did Pluto Nash. Oh, that's right. That was Pluto Nash was what I did. Yeah, he was was doing really, really good there, and just... 
I, never uh, quite came back from Pluto Nash. I, I'm not wholly negative on Pluto Nash. Ah, I don't think it works. <laughs> I wish it did. No, he did. He did the the one two three punch of Tremors, City Slickers, and Heart and Souls. Oh, and City Slickers was a, that was, that was a freight train. That one was a huge. That hit. was a great great film. Yeah. Uh, he also did Speechless, which is okay. He did that's, that. That's uh, pretty good. Speechless. He did with that, Gina Davis and yeah, Michael Keaton. It's okay. It's okay. Right. Not, not amazing or nothing, but it's okay. And he did that uh, remake of Mighty Joe Young, which I've actually never seen. Uh, yeah, that might have been the might have been. D- the, I think it was a hit. Though. I think it made money. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, but yeah, he was a big deal in the nineties, and then just had yeah, one think, big bomb, and it just never yeah, it just think, followed him around. I think Pluto Nash, yeah, just sort of. But he did City Slickers. You think it would balance out you'd in some way? You'd think yeah. he'd get a bit, a bit more mileage out of that, but just sometimes, man, you just get a stigma. Yeah. Well, well, you know, be- between <coughs> Tremors and this, I think he's just uh, yeah. an, an admirable and, filmmaker, and admirable Slickers. mainstream filmmaker, film uh, yeah. filmmaker, and. Yeah, I, I think uh, he was wise to get actors who played together so well. It's just a great ensemble, the sort of the core five characters, and yeah, all, and it's really and, well. Cast. And Robert Downey Jr. doing golly whatever whatever it is he's doing to play alfred woodard in one care in one scene or to play yeah. kira sedgwick in one scene uh yeah it, it's it's just a really sweet a bit schmaltzy a yeah. bit a bit trite but very enjoyable yeah well listen i love it too i'm really glad you picked it mm-hmm. uh, my next film is also a comedy it's also a light comedy a family friendly comedy uh, and it's a really damn good comedy and it's dave Oh, I like Dave. Dave is great. Dave is <laughs> Dave is a very Capra-esque kind mm. of comic. Basically, imagine if Capra directed a script written by Preston Sturges. And mm. I think that's the kind of vibe. That's, uh, that's clearly what the filmmakers are going for. And they, and they yeah. nail it, though. Like They actually do a really, really good job. So uh, if you've never seen it, Dave stars Kevin Klein in a dual role. He plays the President of the United States, who's a cad. And he also plays... Uh, a normal guy who looks so much like the president of the United States that he'll sometimes do like impersonations at like local functions. Yeah. Like, oh, the president's going to be here to, you know, open up a new car park or something, and he'll just be him. Mm. Uh, and uh, he's enlisted. Well, there, there are actors who do that too. Yeah. Who do like really good certain presidents, and uh, and they got to ride that as hard as they can while that president is in office. Again, if you if you look like a presidential candidate and you're funny, cock to SNL because they might need you. Uh, but uh, Kevin Klein, the the working class Kevin Klein, is enlisted by the U.S. government to be the official double for the president. The president needs to be in two places at once. Mm-hmm. He needs to be at this public function. He's going to give a speech, but then he's going to duck out and do something super top secret. You, we need you to just exit the building publicly, be seen doing it. You don't need to say anything. You don't mm-hmm. need to do anything. Just shake hands. And get out. Unfortunately, while he is doing this, the president has a stroke. And he's in a coma. Mm. And he was doing this, uh, he, he had, and he had that stroke while he was having an affair. And in an attempt to keep the president in power, while also uh, uh, completely controlling the presidency, Frank Langella, who is one of the higher muckety-mucks uh, in the administration, decides, let's just keep Kevin Klein as the president. And he can, and of course he wants to keep Kevin Klein as the president because he's up to all kinds of malfeasance. Yeah, he doesn't want the vice president, he's played by Ben Kingsley. Uh, he doesn't want the vice president taking power. And initially their excuse is, the vice president is not a well man. He would not, the country would not be safe in his hands. Mm-hmm. We just need you to just sort of keep the country, like just babysit the country for a little bit. You don't actually have to do anything serious. <laughs> we'll do all the work. You just be a figurehead. 
and Kevin Klein is convinced after a, a decently written argument. Like, it's still the wrong thing to do, but you believe that a decent person might be convinced. He agrees to do it. Mm-hmm. And what he discovers is that, and this is a very folksy view of politics. It's not one that I entirely disagree with. The best way to be a successful politician is to skip all the politicking parts. <laughs> because he's the one who's actually like, listen, what if I don't worry about getting reelected? What if I don't worry about uh, you know, keeping everybody happy? What if I just did the right thing all the time? What if I actually tried to balance the budget? Like, what if we actually did that? Could 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 we do that? And it turns out, kind of. Uh, meanwhile, he is trying to uh, avoid the first lady, played by Sigourney Weaver, but they're actually falling in love. And that's a big old complication. There's one Secret Service agent who knows he's not the real president. He's played by Ving Rains before Ving Rains was really famous. Um, and there's a great bit where he's talking to Ving Rains about, like, yeah, so you would take a bullet for the president. And he's like, yeah, it's a job. So you take a bullet from me? And he's like, oh. <laughs> like he had never thought of it before. Like he's not sure he would. Like, yeah. is that technically my job now? Is that what I signed up for? It's smart. It's funny. It's sweet. It actually, in a very Mr. Smith goes to Washington kind of way, it has some hope for the country in its mm. political systems while acknowledging they're deeply fucked. Yeah. And I think yeah. that that balance is always strong in a political comedy. You don't want to, you don't want to make it too light because no one buys it we know too much about politics to believe any of that shit but we also want to believe that somewhere nestled in the the heart of it it can be fixed in some way it's it's the mr smith goes to washington thing yeah it's the idea is that uh, in the heart of it is a good idea at the very end it's like actually displays shame which is something we never see um my favorite bit in dave is when um he actually wants to start doing yeah. politics he wants to start yeah. helping the country because he actually is is very patriotic he believes yeah. in the country and uh so he has to figure out a way to balance the budget so he calls a buddy of his he's just he's just an accountant it's just like he's a, a regular, regular accountant. accountant it's like i need your help to balance also the played budget. by charles Grodin. charles Grodin, there you yeah. go it's like I, I don't know if i can do this man no come <laughs> on we just got to do it and there's yeah. a wonderful sequence where he's just like crunching numbers and he balances yeah. the budget it's like that's the fantasy I want. Somebody yeah. just needs to sit down and write down the numbers and you just do it in the afternoon. It'll be great. Yeah. And of course, that's oversimplifying everything. Of course, of course it, is. it is. That's the fantasy. Yeah, this is, that's yeah. the kind of movie it is. Kevin Klein never been more charming and that is saying something because that is Kevin Klein. Yeah. And Kevin Klein is a fucking national treasure. <laughs> um, everyone's great in this movie. It's really, really smartly written. Uh, it's great. I love this movie. Just mm. the pieces. Yeah. Uh, I, I have a comedy on my list as well. Okay. Um, what what really one of the best comedies? Um, it's Ooh. it's kind of the Branagh's Much Ado About Nothing. I only uh, didn't put this in because we did Shakespeare movies not that long ago, I know, and I thought it was a little I repetitive, but it's so of, good. But I kind of have to. This this movie is is a it's cloud so of joy. It's, it's, so, it's so unbelievably happy. And I love that you have uh, two Keanu Reeves movies on your list. Oh, isn't that weird? I didn't even think about that. <laughs> <laughs> he, he's a standout in uh, as Ortiz the dog boy in Freaked. Not he's, so much as Don Pedro. N- or Don John. Oh, sorry, Don yeah, John. Not uh, so much as Don John in Much Ado About Nothing. No, no he's, he's, he's very clearly the weakest link in, yeah. in Much Ado About Nothing. Every, t- everybody is great except for Keanu Reeves. And I love Keanu Reeves to pieces, but like you can tell like uh, the musical score is like trying to drown him out when he talks. Like Just let the music do the talking. Well, they, we don't want to listen to Keanu Reeves trying to do Shakespeare. K- Kenneth Branagh, who wrote, wrote the screenplay and directs, uh, 
very wisely cut a lot. I mean, Don John wasn't a very no. talky character anyway. He's not. He, in he it has much. a very minor role in the whole play, even though he's the villain. He, he he sets the plot in motion, but he's not on stage very much. The the play itself, the original Shakespearean text, is so lightweight that the story. Like they they say in the script, the story to this doesn't matter. Well, the title fact, is, the much, title ado is about much ado about nothing. It's a whole bunch of stuff that's happening uh, about nothing in particular. Yeah, the um, there's there's two couples. The plot involves the young couple, yeah, which is Claudio and Hero. A, a bunch of men have just returned from war to Messina, yeah. and uh, everybody's happy that they're back, and it's a time to party and fall in love. Yep. And uh, the young, young couple is played by Robert Sean Robert Leonard, Sean Leonard and, and um, Kate Beckinsale. And Kate, yeah, young before Kate, she was anybody, young Kate Beckinsale. Yeah. So yeah, t- uh, two young, uh, young movie idols at the time. Yeah, and they are bland as toast. They're written now. Oh yeah, Shakespeare wrote them that way. Yeah, and they fall in love, and the whole plot hinges on them getting married at the end. And like traditional comedies, yeah. somebody's got to get together and get married by the end. The couple we care about <laughs> is the side couple. That's Beatrice and Benedict. Yeah. And they're played by Kenneth Branagh and Emma Thompson, who were uh, a couple at the time. Wonderful Hollywood power couple. I think they worked incredibly well together. Yeah. Uh, they were also in Henry V together. And Dead Calm. Not Dead Calm. Um, uh, Dead, Dead, Dead Again. Again. Dead Again. Dead yeah. Again is excellent, yeah. by the way. Yeah. Uh, and Beatrice and Benedict are uh, a little bit older, uh, a lot wittier, and way funnier. And they hate each other, but they but they really love each other. Yeah, and you you know that they have a, an affection for each other. They're perfectly well matched. And uh, the subplot of the movie, which is kind of the main plot of the movie, is all the other characters tr- conspiring to get them together again. Uh, there's some betrayal. The villain tries to break up the marriage, and it looks like somebody's dead. And it looks like they're not, and it's all that Shakespearean stuff. Yeah. Uh, the the script is so lightweight, and Kenneth Branagh wisely makes everything lightweight. This is a, a sun-dappled movie, where everybody's wearing white and prancing around on the Italian countryside, and you just want to be there. Uh, there there's a scene early on where everybody's just sort of getting ready, and they're putting on makeup, or they're taking showers, and they go to a ball. It's like, I want to have a... a cocktail and hang out with these people. <laughs> I, just uh, wanna, I just want to wear, like, loose cotton clothes mm. and hang out in a vineyard yeah. and drink wine and Just, fuck. That, that's all that's, that's going on. That's yeah. the only thing that's, every, that's all anyone wants to do. And, and everybody's happy and making jokes the entire Even when things are dour, you know, it's not going to last. Yeah. There's a scene uh, in the original script <laughs> that Kenneth Branagh cut for the movie where um, the character of Don Pedro, who's played by Denzel Washington in this yeah. movie, and Claudio, uh, first hear about Hero's death, fake death. Not yeah. giving anything away. It's people people fake their own deaths, pretend to be other yeah. people. It's a whole thing. And uh, there's a scene in the original script where they hear of that and they say, oh, that's... They say things along the lines of, that's, that sounds like a plot contrivance. We're not going to be sad about this. Mm. Like, they're supposed to be really kind of moved by it. And Kenneth yeah. Branagh writes, like, he plays the scene as if they actually are moved because yeah. we need an emotional moment we, in that we, scene. We don't want to... Here's the problem. The problem with... One of the problems with Much Ado About Nothing as a story yeah. is that some of the characters we're supposed to like do some pretty shitty things towards the end. Yeah. They're being manipulated, but the way that they're responding to those manipulations doesn't speak very well of them. Yeah. So wanting to downplay the shittiness <laughs> is a pretty smart move. It's pretty wise. Yeah, yeah. he made the right call. Yeah. Um, the movie basically lives and breathes, as far as I'm concerned... On three things. Uh, One, the set. (laughs) They shot it on a fucking vineyard. It is gorgeous. You just want to go there and hang out. It's just an absolute tourist trap of a movie. 
And the other two things are, as you've already mentioned, Kenneth Branagh and Emma Thompson. Uh, Thompson they are, yeah. their, their chemistry is off the fucking charts, and very few actors, at least in film history, hmm. knew how to take Shakespearean dialogue, even some of the weirder stuff, and make it read. You do not have to understand every nuance of that language hmm. to understand and see that what they're doing is funny. Yeah. And what they're doing is romantic. They are killing it. Just absolutely fucking murdering <laughs> Shakespeare's um, script and resurrecting it from the yeah. dead and making it look like them for some reason. It's a weird metaphor and I regret making oh, it. I, the I, point is, it's I, great. I, I was following you for a second there. Yeah, I lost you know, it. Uh, what, what Kenneth Branagh does with Shakespeare, uh, and he, he's done it uh, quite expertly at least three times. I, I think uh, Henry V, Much Ado, and his Hamlet. Yeah. are all impeccable movies. Yeah. Just in, in terms of his approach to the material, uh, every actor in all of those movies is just spot on throughout, yeah. uh, except for Keanu Reeves. And uh, he, he was a celebrity get. He, was, uh, he and, helped sell the movie. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Th- same, well, I mean, Denzel Washington was a celebrity get, but Denzel Washington is an excellent actor. He can true, play that. True, true. At some point, you get uh, Denzel Washington and he gets Keanu Reeves, you got... You, you got and you, you're, you're in and, a few the, hundred more theaters. And they're brothers, which is especially so bizarre. Weird. Um, but... Uh, he he did a few uh, that is Kenneth Branagh did a few other Shakespearean movies. He did and as you like it, which is pretty good. I didn't see that one. Uh, he did uh, Love's Labor's Lost, which is shit. It's and uh, I find it weirdly. Tr- here's the deal. Imagine if Kenneth Branagh was asked had to no do, budget. I mean, he had no budget and was asked to do like a high school production uh-huh. of something, and he did it pretty good. Like it's like it was a it, weird. It was a weird ask. And he somehow pulled it off. And if you're in the, the audience, you're going, well, that was cute in kind of a waiting for Guffman kind of way. And it's just, it doesn't go. I, I don't I don't dislike that movie, but it's 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 a misfire. Uh, yeah, his idea with Love... First of all, Love's Labor's Lost is, is a weird play. It's a weirdly uh, it's, insubstantial play yeah. until right at the end when it gets super heavy for no reason. Yeah. Like, it just, the, it just he, he tra- shifts on he a He transposed it to, like, the 1930s, <sighs> and he decided to make it a musical. Yeah, that it, full of, it's like, Cole sort of, Porter songs. Yeah, it's like, like old, yeah. old 30s standards, and... Um, some of them work so, better than others. Yeah, some Irving Berlin. Some of the actors so. can sing, most of them can't. Yeah, and he let them all sing and <sighs> most like in their can. natural voice. The, and, the one person who uh, is who is really doing great. There's a few people who can actually sing in that movie. Like mm-hmm. Alessandro Nivola can't sing. Yeah. Uh the person who can't sing but knows how to be funny is Timothy Spall. Yes. He yeah. does a version of I Get a Kick Out of You that is genuinely quite charming. He plays the the police officer, yeah, character, the, the, co- yeah. the comic relief guy, basically. Yeah. He's he's great, and I also rather I'm, I'm rather fond of. Um, uh, they can't take that away from me. At the end, yeah. it's a song. It's a song where everyone fell in love, and now they have to go off to war, and that's the end. And it's very very sad. That bit is handled reasonably well. I think mm. they actually have a good sense of gravitas out of it. I think it's sweet. Uh, it, it, too many things go right in that movie for me to write it off completely, but most things go wrong. Yeah, yeah. So. Uh, but what I was going to say is uh, Branagh's expertise with Shakespeare <coughs> is that he lets all of the actors yeah. uh, use their natural voices. Yeah. He doesn't insist on like an accent or a rhythm or a house to style. the text. He, yeah. he wants it to feel as natural as possible, and I think that's a really wise approach, especially with something like Much Ado, which is so light and frothy you want people to be enjoying themselves uh, uh, on screen rather than uh, reciting things right. people need to be laughing and having a good time you want Brian Blessed to be you know the, the fuck bull that he is <laughs> charging around the Italian countryside <laughs> flirting with Imelda Staunton which happens in the movie 
I think that's his PlayStation Five handle. <laughs> fuck Bowl. If, if you're ever playing like Borderlands or something like that, and Fuck Bowl Six Thousand shows up, that's just Brian Blessed. Yeah. Did I tell you about the time I survived a plane crash? You're making that up. I am not. <laughs> he probably isn't. Brian Blessed survived a plane crash. I believe once. you. I believe you. Yeah, he's a very, look very Brian, storied man. Look up Brian Blessed's life. When you're done reading about it in four years. Get back to us, because that man has led a fascinating life. And on top of it all, he's a brilliant actor. Oh, yes. Anyway, we should move on. Uh, my I, my next pick is also uh, a period piece. It's also a costume drama of sorts. All right. It is also a story about love, although it's a totally different tone. Uh, it's Remains of the Day. Uh, okay. Okay. I'm sensing some... No, I, I, I don't hate it. I just haven't finished it. You never finished yeah. it? Oh my god. Remains of the Day is a movie I saw when it came out when I was a kid and I was too young for it. Because hmm. it is a very reserved movie. Yeah, it's a movie about people holding things back. Uh, th- this wasn't a case of me turning it off because I didn't like it. I was I was young and I ran out of time. And yeah, I just never it, it's not a movie that's it, designed yeah. for young people. It's a movie designed for older people. I, I caught it again when I was in college. Uh, I happened to be. I went to school at UCLA, and they had like a big screening room that was actually like a full movie theater. Mm. And occasionally, they would just like every week they would show movies. And one time, they were showing Remains of the Day, and I just happened to sit in on it. And it turns out, Remains of the Day fucks. <laughs> Remains of the Day is a great fucking movie, and is a great movie about holding everything back. Mm. Uh, it stars Anthony Hopkins as uh, a butler uh, prior to World War Two. Uh, for an incredibly wealthy British aristocrat. Uh, and his job is to keep the house together. And that's all he cares about. He doesn't care about anything else going on. There are important political meetings that are deciding the future of Europe in the 1930s. So it's kind of an important time. And he doesn't care about that. He doesn't think about that. He's just concerned with doing his job. And one of his uh, uh, new employees... Uh, is played by uh, uh, Emma Thompson again. Mm-hmm. Uh, repeating actors a lot. Here. That, it, you know what? It was their time, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, yeah, they are. She, she's the she's the new housekeeper, and they are completely smitten with one another, and they will never talk about it. <laughs> it will never come up. It will come up almost, and then something will happen. She's like, oh, what are you reading over there? Oh, is it some saucy love story or something like that? You're like, what are you, what are you keeping from me? And then it turns out it's just like a book. Like, it's just, it's actually the opposite, actually. It's, uh, I'm, I'm, she, arra- I'm arranging matches. She, she thinks he's he's keeping something clandestine, but he's actually reading a love story. And she's mm. shocked that he has a soul. And then it turns out, like, and they're super into each other constantly. And they will never, ever, ever, ever talk about it. And you want them to. And they come so close in every single fucking time. I'm sorry. It's like, uh... It's like you ever see Wages of Fear <laughs> with the truck that's gonna blow up? Yeah, Wages of Fear is a great fucking movie about a whole bunch of guys who are so desperate to, for money to get out of the situation that they're in that they take a job driving nitroglycerin, like in barrels, barrels of nitroglycerin on rinky-dink trucks over uneven terrain, knowing that if they hit a pothole, they could die immediately. And the whole movie is just that. It's just you wondering, when's the fucking truck going to blow up? That's Remains of the Day, but will they ever talk about how they feel about each other? Meanwhile, World War II is starting to rage in the background, and you realize that, like, if Anthony Hopkins had given a shit, maybe things might have gone a little differently, because his boss is gradually turning into a fascist. Like, he's starting to read more and more shit about what's going on in Nazi Germany, and thinking, well, actually, that does make a bit of sense. And it's just so fucking horrifying. Um, 
Great supporting turns from Hugh Laurie and Christopher Reeve. Um, it's just stunningly understated, yet wildly powerful. And if you can get on that wavelength, it's absolutely riveting. It's completely entertaining in a, in a very legit, striking, suspenseful way. And if you're not in the mood for it, you will not give a shit. And it's such a weird tone to strike. But I encourage you, if you if you tried watching and weren't into it, if you're a little older now, try it again. Because Remains of the Day is a great fucking movie. I, I love it. I, I'd like to get to it at some point. I hope you do someday. Yeah. I think you would for, like it. I think you'd really think. Yeah. I, I remember, I watched it shortly after it came out, so I was still a teenager, so yeah, yeah I wasn't appreciative of, of what was going on in the movie. It's, so it's not designed for, for adolescent I'm, yeah. mentality. It's I'm, not an adolescent. I'm of an age where I could appreciate it. Like, my, adolescents could appreciate Much Ado About Nothing. They might not get every nuance, but you'll get the gist, and you'll yeah. appreciate the humor and the and the debauchery. It remains of the day, it's, it's, it's not for horny teens. No. no, no. It's not. <laughs> anyway, what's your next pick? Um, I have a crime movie on my Ooh. list. Uh, it's it's um it's it's about a heist, okay, and it's about a pair of uh, a pair of roommates who take in a lodger, and the lodger is up to something insidious, and um, it turns out that the lodger is stealing uh, a, a piece of technology from the roommates in order to break into a museum. The roommates are Wallace and Gromit, okay, and the lodger is a penguin, and it's... the short film is called The Wrong Trousers. I, I almost picked this. <laughs> Did I you came, really? I, came, I love the short. I, I, oh, I came, I'm dead uh, serious. It was like between this and my boyfriend's back. And I was like, no one's going to pick my boyfriend's back. I should pick my boyfriend's yeah, back. Yeah, give, give some voice to that one. <clears throat> yeah, um, I love this movie. No, the, yeah, The Wrong Trousers is, um, I, I mean, there were there were three, there have been multiple Wallace and Gromit uh, pieces of media. Yeah. Uh, there have been four short films and one feature. The feature's really good. Uh, mm. But I think the three first shorts, uh, A Grand Day Out, mm. The Wrong Trousers, and A Close Shave, are each... Each of the masterpieces. Completely sublime. Yeah. A grand Day Out is, is really lo-fi, even compared mm. to the second one, The Wrong Trousers. Yeah. Uh, it really does feel like it was made in someone's basement, but that doesn't no, ruin it. No, it's still, it. it's still really charming. Yeah. But like, once you see them, they start having a little bit more money and time. Mm. They did some really magical things on The Wrong Trousers onward. Yeah, and, and The Wrong Trousers, though, is like, <coughs> I think it hits that really magical sweet spot where you can still see like some thumbprints on it and a little yeah. bit of the actual like human element that's going into it. Yeah. By the time they got to the feature film, it was super slick. Yeah. You didn't get... Didn't have that anymore but yeah the wrong trousers wallace and gromit if you're unfamiliar are uh animated characters they're animated of plasticine they're uh stop motion clay animation and um wallace is 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 a dotty man yeah he's a a a bit a bit of a plummy fellow yeah he's like a a character out of a woodhouse novel he's a brilliant uh, inventor but he is just addled and silly and has he cares only about cheese uh, Cheese and his dog Gromit, and Gromit is mute. Gromit doesn't yeah. speak, uh, but, but Gromit he, is far more brilliant than he, and far more yeah. wise. Uh, Gromit is still like kind of um, anthropomorphized, even though he can't talk. Like he walks mm. around on his, uh, uh, he walks around on four legs. Sometimes he walks around on two legs. Mm. He uses things like he, he has s- opposable sits at the thumbs, dinner table and drinks wears two clothes cups, when yeah, necessary. Yeah. yeah, he's this very very smart dog. Yeah, uh, and uh, yeah, I love the relationship between them because they. Wallace seems kind of unaware of Gromit's brilliance. Yeah, like he's he's kind of at least he obli- takes it for granted. Yeah, he's, he's aware kind of it, but kind he of this the kind yeah. of this oblivious character. Uh, but he's a brilliant invest- inventor, and he invents techno trousers, uh, a pair of pants that walks around on its own. And his idea is the pants can take my dog for a walk. Gromit doesn't like that. Uh, <laughs> 
but it cost him so much he has to let out a room in his apartment, and wouldn't you know it, uh, a penguin moves in, a mute penguin, a sinister penguin. And the penguin uh, kind of moves into Gromit's room without asking, yeah. and Wallace just says, well, let's just fix up the room for you instead. He can stay there. And, and then he starts, uh, like, getting Wallace's newspaper and things, and yeah. just kind of becoming the new Gromit. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. like a Hitchcock thriller for a little yeah. bit there. Single white penguin. <laughs> single black and white penguin there you go uh and uh and and of course the the penguin is up to something incredibly sinister and wants to use those techno trousers himself and yeah. uh, reads books with titles like uh, electrical engineering for penguins <laughs> you see you see in the town that there are wanted posters uh, for uh, a, a chicken, chicken. Yeah, there's, there's a chicken, a chicken is, at large there's a chicken who is like out stealing things and of course it can't be the penguin and then you realize that the penguin like puts on like a rubber glove, a rubber on, glove his on his head so it looks like a rooster that's his disguise yeah and chicken. then Gromit figures it out and he feels really really smart so of course Gromit has to stop mm. the penguin from using the techno trousers while, while Wallace is in them yeah, from yeah. from committing horrible crimes and getting Wallace in trouble, and it's charming as hell. <laughs> it's very a lot of cool uh, visual innovation with the animation because uh, the the trousers can walk up walls and on ceilings, They're like little suction yeah suckers on the bottoms of the feet. And in order to sort of stage this heist, there's this weird climbing up walls and into pipes and out through windows kind of mapping that I think is very clever. Oh, it's wonderful. Yeah. It's it's just. It's really, really great to watch them in order, and you watch the original Grand Day out. It's it's wonderful. It's charming. It's sweet, and you see all the magic there right away. And, 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 and then you just see them. Long you shorts, see them, about thirty minutes apiece. Yeah, and you yeah. see them, but you see them grow mm. in a close shave, and you see that like they had the ambition, they had the skill, they just didn't have the materials yet. And yeah, with the, the Round Trousers is just a masterwork. <laughs> it's it's really really great. Um, yeah, uh, it it won an Academy Award for Best Short, as yeah. did a close shave. Um, yeah. uh, Ardman Animation, the studio, mm-hmm. uh, sadly was like they were on a hot streak for many, many years. They were like Pixar; they just could they could do no wrong. Yeah. I think they hit a wall when they made the feature film Flushed Away. That was their is, first mistake. Yeah, which a was CGI. They tried to make it look like their old plasticine mm. animation, but they they did it in CG, and it was just a strange conceit. Uh, it's about rats who got flushed down a toilet, and there's a whole rat society in the sewers. Mm. Fun idea, I suppose, but didn't really work out. Yeah. Uh, I never saw their Christmas film, uh, Arthur Christmas. Oh, it's that was, so great. That's another CGI I film lo- of theirs. Th- honestly, but, uh, like, we, we started taking them for granted a bit, but uh, they mm. were amazing in the 2010s. Pirates Band of Misfits, one of the funniest yeah. movies of the decade. Pirates is really fucking funny. I am not uh, exaggerating. That's one of the uh, absolute top-down funniest movies of the last 15 that years. That one's really good, and the the, uh, the film that nobody saw, Early Man, is also really hilarious. Yeah, it's really That's cute. Part, yeah. Art, art. I, Did you finally see Early no, Man? No, I just take your word for it. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I was hoping you wouldn't challenge me on that. No, 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 I'm kidding. Uh, but I, I, didn't, I didn't see it. But no, but the, the Pirates is fucking wonderful. Arthur Christmas is a truly delightful film. I'm surprised it's not more of a perennial Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, it needs to be discovered, and you can watch it anytime. It's not just a Christmas movie, but it is a Christmas movie. It's a great yeah. Christmas movie. Um, and then they did Shaun the Sheep movie, which is also about as funny as Pirates. Yeah, Those Sha- are two, Sha- just two masterfully yeah, funny Sha- films. Shaun the Sheep is... is um, it, it, it's like Harold Lloyd-level comedy. like Because yeah. it, it, it's silent. Most of the characters yeah. don't speak. And uh, yeah, it's just all staged visually, and it's just so, so smart. Yeah, the only... Uh, uh, the 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 uh, the Wallace and Gromit short that didn't win best animated short mm. was a Grand Day Out. It lost to another Ardman short, Creature Comforts. 
Fair. That's fair. Which is a really Creature cute Com- film. Yeah, Creature Comforts is, uh, they interviewed people about uh, living, living in England. Just stuff. and Yeah, stuff. And then they took those interviews and they animated animals over them. Yeah. Uh, so as if an animal yes. was talking about it. They were doing animal things while they talked. And it's just charming. Yeah. And it turned into a TV series. It's really cute. Yeah, they, they have this sort of uh, very particular house style that I'm very fond of. Little beady eyes and really wide mouths and gigantic hands. Everything is uh, scaled to match those characters. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, it's just fascinating to look at. They're, they've always been really, really fun. Years and years ago, uh, Roger Ebert hmm. suggested that Ardman should do a feature film of the Castle Blandings novels. Yeah, Jeeves and, and Worcester, yeah. Uh, P.G. Woodhouse. Um, mm-hmm. Jeeves and Worcester are other P.G. Woodhouse characters. The Castle Blandings is sort of... Oh, man, man, don't confuse my bad. Right. Sure, Jeeves and Worcester, too. Why That'd not? Um, but yeah, and ever since he said that, it's like, this needs to happen. I know. Just take the suggestion. Just do it. Just yeah. do Castle Blandings and Ardman styles. Yeah, P.G. Woodhouse is like, and Ardman is a marriage made in heaven. That yeah. sounds great. Mm-hmm. Man. All right, well, my next pick is also stop-motion animated. Ooh, all right. But it is a feature, and it is Tim Burton's The Nightmare Before Christmas, directed by Henry Selick. Uh, the, the title, I think, was Tim Burton's The Nightmare Before Christmas. They put Tim they Burton in the title. Tim Burton's after a while. They put Tim Burton in the title because... This is on my list as well. So yeah, oh, good. Yeah. Okay, uh, Tim Burton's The Nightmare Before Christmas uh, is based on an original story by Tim Burton uh, about uh, how every single holiday has its own town, and everyone in that town is that responsible is, is, for putting uh, together part of that holiday. That is... Um, um, secular American holidays. Well, some uh, of them were important. We got like, St. Patrick's Day. We've got uh, you know, so, yeah. yeah. Uh, same, Christmas wasn't started in America. I, mean, uh, like, I, I suppose not. But all of the iconography is like American greeting card Christmas. Very, very much. So. Yeah, Christ no, does not live in Christmas Town. No, no, no. That's very, very true. <laughs> but like that, Christmas Town is kind of the template. The idea is uh, Rankin Bass used to do these stop motion animated specials. Mostly about Christmas. There are a few others, but most of them were about Christmas. Uh, and they all had this general idea of the holiday as this wonderful uh, uh, stop-motion animated wonderland full of colorful characters, all of whom were either trying to put Christmas together or trying to stop Christmas. And for whatever reason, they never did a proper Halloween Christmas uh, Halloween special. They did a couple of monster specials. I was going to say that Mad Monster Party. Mad Monster Party is a is a wonderful uh, feature length of memory serves mm-hmm. a stop motion film about all the monsters coming together to decide who's going to be the new ruler of the monsters. But it is not about Halloween. I, I love Mad Monster. Party. I know you do. I, I saw that on TV a lot as a kid. I, I find it very very charming. They also did another. Oh, what was it called? They also did another one that was two D animated that was about. Um, when uh, Dr. Frankenstein decided to make a bride for the Frankenstein monster, and they decided to have mm. a big shindig of a wedding at a hotel, and how the hotel is basically a proto proto Transylvania. Oh, um, uh, it's it's just it's called <clears throat> Mad 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 Monsters. Yeah, that one's really really fun. A couple of the jokes are sexist and dated, but mostly it's actually like really well animated. and It's really nice, but again, not about Halloween. They did all of these stories about how Christmas was created or Christmas was saved, but never did one for Halloween, and so it made sense. For an animator, that's how Tim Burton got his start, to say, well, what if they did one? Mm. And that's kind of the basic vibe of Nightmare Before Christmas, except he goes a little darker and kookier because he's Tim Burton. And Tim Burton wanted to direct this himself, but he was under contract to do Batman Returns at the same time. Mm. So he had to uh, uh, enlist, and I'm glad he did, because brilliant choice, Henry Selick, who went on to direct such films as James and the Giant Peach and Coraline and Wendell and Wilde. Um <clears throat> And so we have a story about the king of Halloween, Jack Skellington. He puts on the best Halloween every single year, but he's, he's hit burnout. He, he's not the 
king. He's like the celebrity. He's like the... They're, well, they're, there's the mayor, but he's yeah. like the de facto king. He's the king the way that, like... They, they call him... Elvis was the king of rock and roll. Yeah, he was, yeah. That wasn't actually an official title. Sort of when he died, him, it didn't go yeah. to his kids. It, just, it was just the, the label. Yeah, he's, he's they call a, him the pumpkin king. That's what they call him. Yeah, he's a skeleton in a pinstripe suit. There's yeah. a lot of influence from not just the Rankin-Bass specials, but I think a lot of the old Max Fleischer cartoons. Yeah. Things that Tim Burton watched when he was a kid. Absolutely. And, and uh, Tim Burton... Again, Tim Burton did not direct this. No, but his stamp is all But he he designs everything. He designed the characters. Mm. So to call it Tim Burton's is a bit of a misnomer, but it is... It's not, it's also, not altogether wrong. It is, yeah, largely his creation as well, even though Henry Seedlick did the animation and all the direction. But anyway, he Jack, did all the hard work. Jack Skellington has been doing for Halloween for as long as anyone can remember, and he's just burned out. He yeah. just he's, he can't think of any new ideas. He's bored. And he discovers, after wandering through the woods, a door to Christmastown, and he is so fascinated by Christmastown, which has a totally different vibe, that he says, hey, this year, let's do Christmas ourselves. He, but, fe- he feels something when he goes there, and he yeah. can't place his finger but on he, what it is. But it's all filtered through his own artistic perspective, and even if he's not trying, his artistic perspective mm. is dark. There's a really cute bit where he decides he's going to try to make one of those paper snowflakes, where you fold them and like you fold them four times, make a couple of cuts, and then when you unfold them, it looks like a snowflake, right? But when he does it, it turns into a creepy spider. Mm. Makes it's, sense. That's just the guy he is. Yeah. yeah. Um, but all of this is kind of baffling to him that he's his attempts to create Christmas are turning monstrous and everybody is either totally fine with that or completely oblivious to it. And well, yeah. he he well, eventually decides to take over Christmas and it goes really, really bad. They kidnap Santa Claus and <laughs> they almost ruin Christmas forever. Hmm. Will Jack figure yeah. out his shit? Yes, it's a kid's movie. <laughs> but it's delightful. It, yeah, the, the, the songs are by Danny Elfman and they're all a little bit off. Like yeah. the rhyme scheme doesn't quite work. The, yeah. uh, the, it's like some Gregorian chants that he's drawing. They're from a little. Too. They're yeah. way more verbose than we're used to in yeah. animated films of the era. They they're in like weird meters. They they very few of them are properly catchy. Although they are, they're so off that they become catchy. Yeah. Um, it's just a wonderfully strange film that is so absolutely confident in its style, and its tone, and its characters, and its plot. Everything about it works. Yeah, like it's legitimately it's, great filmmaking. It, it's it's a really wonderful film, and I, I yeah. feel like um, it. Its ultimate story is actually incredibly touching. Um, yeah. There's a, a a character sort of lurking at the beginning of the movie. She's sort of lurking around the sides. The character of Sally yeah. is voiced by Catherine O'Hara. Jack Skellington is played by Chris Sarandon when he's speaking. Uh, when he's speaking, and and Jenny Elfman when he's singing, uh, and. Uh, she understands how Jack feels. Jack is lovelorn. Yeah. This is a goth movie. It's, it's about the goth, lovelorn yeah. goth who uh, is is looking for meaning in the Cure songs and just not finding it. And uh, and wouldn't you know it, Bats Day is coming. Do you know what Bats Day is? Actually, no. It's the nickname for when uh, for the day when all of the goths congregate on Disneyland. Oh, I didn't know that's what that was called. Yeah, okay. that, there's there's a I don't know what day of the year it is, but yeah, all, all of the goths uh, go to Disneyland on the same day, so you can go there and you can see all of the the Doc Martens and the leather boots and the Bauhaus T-shirts and they and the big black hairdos and uh, uh, yeah. Bats Day. I, I guess it changes every year. This coming year in 2023, it's May seventh. May seventh, Bats yeah. Day at Disneyland. So yeah, go to Disneyland in your best <sighs> goth regalia. Uh, and this kind of became a building block in goth vocabulary. It became yeah. huge. Uh, it was a. It wasn't a 
a bomb, but it wasn't a huge hit when it first came out. It was released mm. under Touchstone uh, label. Which because is it was rated a, PG, yeah. because it was kind of, kind of spooky stuff in it. Yeah, And, uh, and so Disney was nervous about their yeah. image, and they wanted to kind of get yeah, a... Yeah, just yeah. in case it was a huge mistake and was really controversial. It's, it's they not a Disney some, film, it's a Touchstone. We have sure, some yeah. plausible deniability on this one. Yeah, and it took a couple years of sort of people buying the cassettes and a yeah. kind of a cult audience that uh, rather unfortunately Disney got its hooks back into it yeah. and it rebranded it. It's now a Disney film. Yeah. Uh, they started having screenings annually and mm. they... That's not a bad thing. And, which is, yeah, that's fine. People can actually see the movie, but they started merchandising the fuck out of yeah. it and it became super overexposed in the pop culture firmament. Mm. You can't walk a few steps without seeing Jack Skellington gloves in a store somewhere. They, it took over Hot Topic. I'm not uh, super mad about it, though, to be perfectly mm. honest, because... Fine. Like well, of all the things to make this, merch this, about, I'm actually yeah. kind of fine with that one because yeah, well, it kind of lends it, itself well. It was this sweet, quirky thing that was sort of off to the side about outsiders right. and it became incredibly mainstream. And the the images aren't don't feel as innovative anymore because you've seen them so. I, I think that's the tragedy uh, of Tim Burton, though, is that yeah, Tim Burton so. was an outsider artist in many ways, but his particular brand of outsider art had a real mainstream appeal, and between. Pee-wee's Big Adventure, Beetlejuice, and then his take on Batman. Batman, yeah, which was the biggest movie ever. Pretty much everything he touched, even like, he's, he's had some missteps here and there, but he always gets his mojo back. Mm. Um, he made the quirky outsider goth art really mainstream. And mm. on one hand, cool, great, more well, people would, appreciate it. On the other hand, that kind of misses the point. I would say uh, Tim Burton is one of the linchpins in yeah. the, the goth style movement. Yeah. Lydia Dietz came along, I think around the same time Bauhaus was just right. Or, um, yeah. uh, or, or like craft work, all of these albums like started to get the goth scene as it came to be known in the 1990s mm. was predicated on characters like Lydia Dietz from Beetlejuice. So uh, his look and his idea and his sensibility informed a lot of that. And I think um, The Nightmare Before Christmas is sort of like the kid-friendly entryway into the goth movement. And now the snake is eating its own tail. I remember when Christina Ricci was talking about when she was cast in The Addams Family. Uh And she was a little kid. She said, you know, I really wasn't, you know, I really didn't understand the craft of acting too well, so I was just doing Lydia Dietz from Beetlejuice. Yeah, yeah, and now Tim Burton has taken that version of Wednesday Adams essentially and mm. made a whole hit Netflix series called Wednesday. Uh, so it's just yeah. circling around. It, yeah, really. weird Tim Burton. Uh, Tim Burton has been trying to do an Adams Family film for a long time. Yeah. Uh, There's gonna I, be a stop. It's gonna be stop motion for a while. Yeah, and, and in yeah. fact, you can find test footage online, and yeah. he made it look like the Chaz Adams drawings, and it looks fantastic. I am, but, uh, I'm sorry, and he was gonna do it in black and white, and yeah. just nobody wanted to do that movie for some reason. Bummer. Uh, Tim Burton rather unfortunately started to find himself falling into the pattern where he was sort of scooped up by whatever studio he was working for, Disney or Warner Brothers mostly, and just sort of locked into something that already fit his sensibility. Yeah, could you take this pre-existing property and Burtonize it for us? Exactly. And, and it's already, yeah, it's already kind, of, kind of Burton-y, so you do, yeah. just do that. Everyone else so, will yeah. do something genuinely original or at least like, you know, mm. not based on like a franchise, and it's yeah, really it's, great. He's been Big doing, Eyes is wonderful. Big Eyes is great. He's been doing mostly mm. franchises uh, yeah. throughout his career. When he does something really original, it's very striking. Yeah. Uh, when his sensibility cracks through the franchise, that's when it becomes interesting. Yeah. Dumbo is an interesting film. It actually is. Uh, there's, there's, because it's an anti-Disney film hiding inside of a Disney it, film. It's like, but not even really hiding. No, he's, it's Burton like publicly burning a bridge at Disney. Yeah. He's yeah. basically just saying, fuck you, fuck you, mm. 
fuck you, Dumbo's cool, I'm out. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's kind of what he's doing here. There, there's, it, there's it literally ends the, with uh, him blowing up Disneyland. D- he, he burns Disneyland down. Uh, Walt Disney is in the Death Star. He's yeah. in this big orb with a laser in it. Yeah. And Dumbo's flying around, drawing fire from the laser as Walt Disney himself is using the Death Star to burn down Disneyland. If that's not a fucking comment. I don't understand. <laughs> I appreciate that that movie has other problems, and it does. Mm. I don't appreciate how everyone's like, oh, nothing interesting. I'm like, nothing interesting? It's actually a... It's really other, subversive. It's subversive. It's also weirdly laid back. Like, it's yeah. not a super dramatic movie at all. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's not amazing, but it's an interesting film. Yeah, uh, anyway, we should move on. Uh, to uh, And since that was one of yours as well, we should yeah. move on to another one of mine. Go for it. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. I want to pick a horror movie. Do it. We haven't really talked about a lot of horror movies, although we have talked about horror-adjacent films. Nightmare Before Christmas, certainly horror-adjacent. Sure. Freaked, horror-adjacent. Uh, yeah, monsters But and actual stuff, yeah. proper horror... For me, it boils down to... Uh, there's a lot of good horror movies released in this year, some of which I expect may be on your list because I know you're a big fan. But there are two horror movies that I couldn't separate because they're kind of really directly of a piece. Okay. And in fact, they even share the same character, although they're played by different people. Okay. Needful Things and The Dark Half. Oh, interesting. Both came out the same year. Both came out the same year. Both uh, are adaptations of works by Stephen King. Uh, the Dark Half uh, is a film directed by uh, George A. Romero, mm-hmm. uh, who, of course, worked with Stephen King multiple times. Uh, he, wore, he Stephen King was in his movie, uh, the, the Night Riders. And, of course, they oh, worked on Creepshow together. Yeah. yeah. Um, really, really, really good movie, The Dark Half. People don't talk about it enough. Um, uh, it, it's, um, it was one of those movies that's really scary. Like, uh, same with uh, Monkey Shines. Yeah. Like, the, these horror movies that came along around the same time that were really scary, and the people who saw them dug them. Yeah. And, and then, just kind of... And, yeah, and then... But didn't get talked about a lot. These days, like... Maybe they'll show up on like Arrow Video or something, one of yeah. those uh, boutique uh, home video yeah. lines. Well, and, uh, yeah, and, and yeah, they're just sort of like skirting around the edges of popularity. And the thing is, is that there's so many Stephen King adaptations out there, and a few of them are just like capital G great. Yeah, and we talk about them in almost hushed tones. Uh-huh. Films like The Shining. Films like Misery. Films like, for some people, The Shawshank Redemption or Stand By Me. And then there's, like, right beneath that, there are these, like, really excellent three-and-a-half to four-star movies that just didn't make that big cultural impact, but they're really fucking great. Uh, The Dark Half stars Timothy Hutton as Stephen King, basically. Uh, Oh, that that character's in all Stephen King's No, but more specifically than usual, because Stephen King, when his work started selling really, really well, he created an alter ego for himself called Richard Bachman, Mm -hmm. and he would publish books on the sly. People didn't know this was Stephen King for a while. And that's where he would publish his more, like, vicious books, for the most part. Like, like that's the where more he would, horrific ones? Yeah, the, the ones that are really just mean. It felt like he was kind of, like, getting out, like, a piece of himself. And then the word got out, and they actually even publicly, like, in, in like, a newspaper, 
killed Richard Bachman. There was like a, I think it was like a, <laughs> a photo shoot where it was like him in the grave. So the dark half is about a, a, a writer mm. who had created an alter ego for himself. And he also has an alter ego outed. He also kills that alter ego publicly. And then the alter ego starts walking around and killing people. <laughs> now, what you might think initially is, okay, so this is like some kind of like thought form that he's like kind of brought into existence, which is perfectly mm. fine and perfectly scary. That's the easy way out for the dark half. The dark half is weird and fucked up. The opening of this movie was so not what I was expecting. I was on my couch watching it because I didn't see it in theaters. I was on my couch watching it as an adult. And mm. I went, oh, God damn it. Holy <laughs> fuck. What the shit? Like, I did not see it coming at all. Um, it's just a top to bottom, really well thought out movie. It's one of the better movies Stephen King has. Uh, uh, one of, Again, not his books, but of the movies in which uh, that are based on Stephen King stories about writers. Uh-huh. Most of which are a pretty thinly veiled version of Stephen King. Um, I actually think this is in the upper echelon near The Shining. Um, okay. And uh, I think a lot of it is due to Timothy Hutton giving a really fantastic dual performance. As the good version of this character and the bad version of this character. And the exact nature of the duality I'll leave you to discover because that's half the fun of it. Um, Timothy Hutton is giving an Oscar worthy performance in this movie. He's just absolutely 100% committed to these two completely different characters. Mm-hmm. And I think they're really, really wonderful. Uh, so it's really, really great. The, the ending lets it down slightly. It feels like a little bit of a cop-out, but not so much that it really hurts the film. I highly recommend it. I love it to pieces. I think it's a great thriller. And then uh, the other one is Needful Things, which was directed by Charlton Heston's son. <laughs> really? Yeah, people forget about that. It was directed by Fraser Clark Heston. Uh, and this is the only film he ever directed that didn't uh, co-star his dad. Um, but uh, in any case, yeah, Needful Things stars the great Max von Sydow uh, as Lel- uh, is it Leland Gaunt? Is that who he plays? That's like this oh, wonderful I thought, creepy name. It was like wasn't it Randall Flagg, which is the no, same as in The Stand? No, Randall Flagg is the character from The Stand. Uh, yeah. There's there's some. There's certain characters in Stephen King books that if you go through, like, the Dark Tower, like, are kind of the same people in different guises. Mm. I don't think Leland Gaunt is Randall Flagg, but they yeah, have, Le- there's some, they're both the devil. Le- Leland Gaunt, yes, is his name. They're both the devil. Um, he goes to the small town of Castle Rock in Maine and opens up an antique shop. And everyone's like, well, that's not going to last. Who wants a little antique shop in a small town? How can you possibly have enough business for that? And indeed, he doesn't even sell his shit. No, no, no. You go inside that antique shop and you find exactly the thing you've been looking for. The varsity like letterman's jacket that you had in high school that you can't mm. find anymore. Boom. It's there. Uh, a, a signed baseball from your favorite baseball star. Boom. Signed, it's signed there. to you. Yeah, like the, to, like someone who had the exact same name as you. What a quinky dink. And Leland Gaunt's like, oh yeah, no, this would be perfect for you. And in fact, you want it so badly, all I ask for is a little favor. Mm. And gradually, over the course of the film... People start getting exactly what they wanted, but having to give up just a tiny little piece of their soul until, and what I love about this movie is you can't tell exactly when this happened. By the end of the movie, everyone's running through the streets killing each other. Mm. It is absolute fucking pandemonium. It's a wonderful, big, broad uh, uh, supporting cast. You got Ed Harris uh, playing uh, Sheriff Pangborn, who in uh, Needful Things is played by Michael Rooker. Okay. Kind of weird. Uh, you got Bonnie Bedelia. You got Amanda Plummer, who's fantastic in this movie. But the the real like superstar of the film is J T. Walsh, who was one of our greatest character actors, mm. and I miss him so much. 
And you watch you watch the you watch movies from the nineties, you will run into him eventually, and he's almost always the best thing about the movie. He's just yeah. genuinely committed and often very, a, very terrifying. There's a really wonderful uh pulpy adventure film from uh, 1995 called Outbreak. Oh, yeah. It's a virus movie. Yeah. And, uh, and feels, feels so cartoonish now. Yeah, it, it, it felt really uh, very serious and it, steely it, at the time. It, but it's it ends really in a helicopter chase. Yeah. <laughs> it it's ends in a helicopter chase. But uh, J.T. Walsh shows up in one scene in that movie yeah. where he, uh, uh, the American government wants to bomb this small town where this, yeah. this virus has broken out. And J.T. Walsh gives this impassioned speech why that's not a good idea because you're killing all these mm-hmm. these citizens. It's like, you, you don't kill American citizens. We're the American... And he just yells, like, that's, those are not statistics. They're flesh and... It's like, he's doing acting 101, like something yeah. out of a monologue book. And that's his only scene. Uh, but <laughs> he kills it. Again. Yeah, absolutely. But he kills he absolutely... Every single movie you'll like see J.T. Walsh in. I, I like to think he did yeah. it in one take. Like, I, that, like I, he was I there. He was on set for an hour, and that was it. Like, I seriously... Every single movie he's in, he is one of, if not the very best parts of that movie. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Breakdown, really awesome Kurt Russell thriller. He's the villain of that movie. Mm. Fucking great. <laughs> Breakdown's pretty good. He's so goddamn... It's such a good fucking film. Um... Anyway, J.T. Walsh is one of the great actors, and I honestly, at least one of the great character actors, and I honestly think this is his opus as far as acting goes. Uh-huh. Because where he starts, where he goes, how he gets there, feels so gigantic, but he gets there so naturally, it's really impressive. Um, these are two really excellent adaptations of Stephen King stories, and I think they understand the right way to do a Stephen King story, which is to find the heart of it, some people get wrapped up in the high concepts or just the imagery, and I think the very best Stephen King movies understand that inside even the dumbest Stephen King story, and there's a lot of stupid ones, mm. there's a nugget of something real. Yeah. Even if you look at the original story The Mangler is based on, The Mangler sucks. The movie? It's awful. <laughs> it's a story about a haunted I, I, I killer like, laundry press. I like how, how kooky that movie is, but you know, I'm, I'm the only one. I, I appreciate that it is kooky. I don't think it's good at being kooky. Uh, I think it's very bad at being kooky. I think it's weirdly tone deaf. But if you read the original story, the whole story is... Stephen King knows that that's a really ridiculous premise. Mm. And the whole story is actually about someone who acknowledges that that's the silliest thing anyone's ever come up with. There's no possible way that that could be real. And then gradually realizing that by sheer mind-blowing coincidence, it does make sense. (laughs) It's like the absolute worst-case scenario of that old Sherlock Holmes thing. If you eliminate whatever is possible, whatever Mm. is true, whatever is left, however improbable, must be the truth. truth. That's the Mangler, and so that's kind of the heart and soul of it, and the movie kind of loses that. Needful Things is about people who just have a want in their in their soul, and mm. they're, they're so self-indulgent, they're so self-involved with it, the way that everyone is on kind of like a little little tiny human level, yeah. the little sacrifices we make to do something just for ourselves, that we don't see what a slippery slope that can be. And then uh, uh, The Dark Half is just a really, really great dual-nature film. Uh, which Timothy Hutton is fantastic. So I love both of those movies. I think they're both right. pretty underrated, especially Needful Things. Some people think that movie's bad. I don't. I think it's great. So <laughs> there you go. Boom. All those right. are a bit of a tie. bit of a tie. Um, I have a horror movie, too. Well, it's, a, it's a horror comedy. Uh-huh. Uh, the question is, which one? 
Part, a couple of really good ones. There's a couple of really good ones that came yeah. out this year. Uh, and in fact, I, I hope you let me have this because it's a bit of a cheat because I'm going by the United States release date uh-huh. and not the uh, New Zealand release date. I'll let you have it. Okay. Uh, it's Peter Jackson's Dead Alive. Yeah. Uh, back when Peter Jackson was interesting. Uh, for a long time he was. For a long time he was. Yeah. I feel like sometime, like, maybe two-thirds of the way through that first Lord of the Rings movie, it's like he's, he stopped being interesting. Uh, when when he gets big budgets, when he discovered digital effects uh-huh. and decided to go big with it, mm-hmm. he stopped uh, sort of exploring more interesting creative places. I, I would argue that when he hit the Lord of the Rings, as he did the Frighteners, and I think the Frighteners is a lot of fun. It's, it's not it's, a great movie, but it's a lot of It's fun. a bit of a train wreck, but I enjoy watching that one a lot. And he's trying to go, like, really wild with the yeah. digital effects in that one. There's all kinds of weird visual stuff he's well, doing. I, I would argue, I think his work on The Lord of the Rings is a bit more reserved in many regards than a lot of the crazier films he was known for. Yeah. And that's fair. But when you talk about budget, he made a nine-hour epic. The initial production cost of that hmm. was, like, $180 million total. So he made each of those movies for about 60 mil. Hmm. And he is actually working with a lot of... He's picking his battles really, really hard. A lot of those visual effects are practical. Some of them are CGI. Some of them are models. And I think that right there is when it's actually like... He might be starting to become less interesting, but I think it's kind of exciting to see him try to use his, like, the moxie he had when he was making stuff like Bad Taste yeah. on a gigantic level. I think, for me, it's when he started... The, the, lo- the Lovely Bones is crap, but... Uh, oh, well, yeah. <laughs> but I think when he did The Hobbit and he was just CGing all of it, it yeah. just stopped seeming like anything had, like, the human touch. Yeah, I, f- yeah. I feel... He, he fell down that sort of technological rabbit hole. He became yeah. interested in the, the toys of filmmaking rather than, yeah. uh, like, shocking people or trying to make people laugh. So I go back to his early stuff, and I'm connecting with that much more. And, and just... Yeah. And also because it, they're completely jejun, disgusting, immature movies, and I like that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, I, I like Bad Taste. I, uh, help, heaven help me, I like Meet the Feebles, and that is a revolting that film. That movie is trying <laughs> to make you not like it, and here's the problem. For me, it succeeds. Yeah. <laughs> I admire, if you've never seen Meet the Feebles, imagine uh, the, the, the Muppet show, mm. but instead of like all being like cute and, and, and whatever, it's like apocalyptic. Like imagine Babylon... <laughs> But with, with ten, Muppets. But, but with Muppets and, like, three times darker. Yeah. Like, that's... And no, actually, fuck it, ten times darker. It ends in a massacre. It's fucking mm. insane. Uh, yeah, it's... Uh, I, I mean, what I like about uh, Meet the Feebles is he was making this dirty puppet movie where there's puppets, yeah. like... There's bodily fluids coming, yeah. drug addiction. Murdering and, each other, singing and, and, songs yeah, about... Sexually, inf- yeah. sexually transmitted infections. There's all kinds... Yeah. Uh, songs about... Things uh, and <laughs> and uh, the, the investors for Meet the Feebles got uh, heard what he was doing. It's like, no, we're not going to give you any more money to finish your filthy puppet movie. It's like, well, fine, fine. Uh, tell you what, mm. you've already invested some in me. How about you give me a little bit more money and I'll do this other film for like real, real cheap? It's right. like this like little low budget horror thing I can do on yeah. the side. And they said, fine, we'll give you money. And he took it and he finished Meet the Feebles. Yes. <laughs> he, did, he never made that other movie. Nah. It was co- a com- he completely hoodwinked them. Uh, then he made a d- he uh, made Dead Alive in the early '90s, and uh, golly, he's firing on all cylinders with this one because he's using uh, some of the more extensive practical effects you'll see in any movie the side of the thing. Yeah, to create quite easily the goriest movie of all time. 
Uh, yeah, probably. It's, it's kind of hard to th- like maybe that remake of Evil Dead where it's raining blood at the end. I, that, that's, but, a, that's competition. I can mm. think of a few like really hardcore, like extreme Japanese movies out there. Yeah, maybe so. Like, but I think when like it comes a, what, to what was the the mm. guinea pig series? Those are those are torture movies. Don't those even look them up. They're just so. Yeah. I mean, I guess I can't stop you, but I don't recommend it. Yeah, those, those are sick, just torture deeply movies. unpleasant. But I think when it comes down to. Uh, um, the, uh, it's a genre that isn't big enough, if you ask me, but the splat stick genre? <laughs> it's a horror gore. It's like yeah. Dead Alive. No, comedy uh, gore. Comedy gore. You uh, said horror gore. Horror gore. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Slapstick, slap splatter slapstick. Yeah. And, uh, Dead Alive and Evil Dead 2 are arguably the two masterpieces of the genre. Yeah. And, and there, are, there are too many others is the problem. That, well, you, there you are, but they're not very good. <laughs> it's, 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 it's not enough, anyway. Yeah. But anyway, Dead Alive is great. It's about a guy who is... Uh, uh, living with his with his older mother, uh-huh. much older mother, and he's uh, she's she's got her like her, her thumb like he- heavily upon mm. him. He doesn't feel like he can like live his life. He's like trapped at home. All, all he does is serve his mom, and yeah. uh... and she's very domineering. And then uh, and then she is bitten by a Sumatran rat monkey. Well, uh, he, he's on a date, so yeah. she's stalking him because he's seeing a young woman for the first time. Yeah, and yeah, she stalks him and gets bitten at the zoo by a Sumatran rat monkey. Yeah, and tra- and as we all know. If you get bitten by the Sumatran rat monkey, you turn into a zombie. Well, Sumatran rat monkey is this this really strange stop motion creation. By yeah, the way. if you if you look in uh, the Peter Jackson's King Kong uh, on the on the ship, there they go to Skull Island. There's actually a cage that says Sumatran yeah, rat well, monkey on there, so they they know what they're doing b- before they've gotten to the Kong uh, Kong's actual island. So we're like two and a half hours into the movie. Yeah, about two and, pri- and a half hours prior, yeah. be- prior yeah. to meeting King Kong. I like the movie more than you. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> the director's cut is longer but better paced. I will say that right now. If you ever watch it, watch the director's cut. It's better. Um, <laughs> yeah, there's five more hours. Anyway, she turns into a monster, and he ends up having to take care of her even more so now because that, he's that a, she's zombie. a zombie. Yeah. And she keeps biting other people, and now he's having to take care of like half of the town. Well, first there, yeah, first there's the nurse who comes in to look after the, the mother. Then there's the priest uh, uh, who has one of the great lines in movie history. I kick arse for the Lord. Yeah. Because, <laughs> like, you don't you don't know this, but as soon as the zombies attack, he just whips out a bunch of kung fu and starts, like, kicking the shit out of zombies. It's like a straight-up Jackie Chan number where he keeps... Fucking great. Sw- sweeping the leg and cutting their legs off. Yeah, it's uh, great. That, that kind of stuff. And he, and he comes out of nowhere. It's mm. perfect. <laughs> Stand back, boy. This, yeah. this calls for divine intervention. And uh, it gets to the point where, like, will he finally grow a spine mm. and say no to his mother? And by saying no to his mother, that means... Means killing all these goddamn zombies in his house. Yeah, and, and yeah, of course, and, the, oh, there's a, a party at one point in his house. The zombies break out, and yeah. it's complete mayhem. There's a bit with uh, a lawnmower that is the stuff of legends. <laughs> lawnmower. Uh, oh. There's a living just living intestine, like some zombie intestines fall oh, yeah. out and just start crawling around on their oh, own. Oh, it's so wonderful. Uh, just the imagination on that guy. Mm-hmm. The amount of of sloppy how sloppy was it it's like a nickelodeon movie almost yeah. how slimy the movie is yeah. uh, and and it's just enjoyable all the way through it's really really funny it's just blisteringly hilarious uh not to everyone's taste oh no definitely i, I think this is one of those one of those movies where like you might be able to share something like army of darkness with mm-hmm. uh with a friend and they army can of darkness get... is like one step below or above pg-13 yeah, like it's, the tone it's, it's is a, pretty light. It's it's an R-rated film, but barely. And yeah. you know, it's it's silly enough and slapsticky enough that yeah. a, a non-horror fan perhaps could watch something like Army of Darkness and still maybe have a good time. 
I think you need to be a deep cut horror fan to appreciate something like Dead Alive. To to, to laugh at somebody getting like their lips chewed off of their face uh-huh. uh, takes a certain constitution. I don't know. I I always used Dead Alive when I was like in college. Dead Alive was one of the movies I would use as kind of like a gateway film. Okay. For like okay, so you've seen some horror movies, but mm-hmm. like you want to you want to you want to take a take a tiptoe into like the 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 weird fucked up cult shit. Uh-huh. Dead Alive, I think, is a good stepping stone because, again, totally, it's actually very kind of sweet. Uh-huh. Like, the love story in it's actually really innocent. It's just the gore is so grotesque. Yeah. And I think the balance between them actually works mm. pretty good. It, it's definitely more grotesque, I think, than Evil Dead 2, even, because it's just kind of mean about, like, a lot of, like, the mom stuff and, like, the... Um, you know, it definitely got a harsher edge, I think, in some regards. But it's, it's I think it's a good. A, yeah. I think it's a good stepping stone to harsher horror. It's here's an element we didn't talk about. It's set in the 1950s, yeah. And I think a lot of uh, sort of the <coughs> the familial <coughs> dynamics are playing off of mm. some like o- old world's uh, conservative repression from sure. the 1950s. I, I didn't live in New Zealand in the 1950s, but no, of course I uh, did, so I can tell you. Yeah, but uh, <laughs> that that's what I'm. Gleaning. That's what I sense from yeah. a movie like Dead Alive. All right. Uh, well, my next pick is also a low-budget uh, uh, independent movie that was made by a really scrappy filmmaker. Mm. Uh, and honestly, this is one of those movies where you watch it and you realize this person had this an infinitesimal budget and came up with something legendary. Mm. And you knew immediately that they were going to do something really big and they were going to make a big a, a dent. Uh, and that is Robert Rodriguez's El Mariachi. Oh, I haven't seen El Mariachi. Oh, it's so good. I've seen Desperado. Desperado's also good. Desperado is a great action movie, but story-wise, it's just kind of okay. Yeah, um, it's, it's barely there as a story. The, the story of El Mariachi, the making of it, is as interesting as the movie itself in some regards. Uh, Robert Rodriguez was wanted to be a filmmaker, and he didn't have any money, and so he donated his body to science. And he took the money that he made, which, by the way... It's like $15,000. No, no, That's no. almost nothing. It was 7225 <laughs> That's how much money this movie... That's how much money this cost. Uh-huh. That's absolutely fucking insane. It ended up... They ended up, after it was purchased, I think in Sundance, uh, they spent like $200,000 to like clean it up, do some remixing on the sound, put music on oh, it, yeah. etc. But the initial production budget... Was like a used car and not even a good one. <laughs> Seven grand. It, it's it, nuts. It was so cheap they couldn't afford squibs. I'm sorry, they couldn't afford blanks. Those are real bullets, and they're just shooting them off camera. Wow! Completely irresponsible. <laughs> Holy shit! <clears throat> but it was a really, really great premise. It's a modern, uh, it's a modern western, and it's a story of um, a mariachi. He goes from town to town. He plays music on his guitar. He makes a little money. He moves on. It's kind of a romanticized kind of existence. He happens to run into a town where uh, a badass drug dealer uh, is on the hunt for all of his rivals, and he is walking around with a guitar case full of guns. Well, wouldn't you know it, the guitar cases get mixed up, and so do the people, and so a whole bunch of, like, uh, you know, uh, mm-hmm. gangsters see this hapless boob who's just wandering around looking for love and, and you know, and, and trying to be an artist... And they think he's a killer, and so they try to kill him, and now he's completely screwed and running around. And, of course, eventually he ends up with a guitar case full of guns. And in Desperado, the character is recast as Antonio Banderas because they were able to get more money and the studio wanted a bigger star. Uh, And he's already become kind of an urban legend. 
And Desperado is pretty fucking great. Like the action in Desperado is a, is admittedly better than El Mariachi. It's just like really it's like halfway between John Woo and Baz Luhrmann. Like it's just this incredibly <laughs> it's like ballroom wild, dancing yeah. meets gun fu and it's fucking amazing. Uh, Once Upon a Time in Mexico, bit of a mess. I think it's kind of too many movies all at once, Hmm. but it's still pretty good. But the original El Mariachi is where all the heart is for me. Because it is about a guy who is a normal person thrust into an unusual situation. It's about a guy who is actually falling in love. Hmm. And it's also, you've got this wonderful meta story about a filmmaker working with nothing. (laughs) Working, Working with cheese and crackers. Like, it's just basically make an action movie with $7,000 and make it a classic. Go. Mm. I don't know too many filmmakers, <laughs> even great filmmakers, who could do that. Mm. And Robert Rodriguez just pulled himself up by his bootstraps. And he learned, There's a he wrote a book about it, and there's a whole bunch of, like, really fun, like, filmmaking tricks. Things that wouldn't be relevant today, but, um, mm. you know, they were shooting it, and they were shooting it on, with such, like, you know, cheap equipment and such, that sometimes, like, the audio and shit would go out of sync. And so he would have to cut away from a dialogue scene in order to get everything like back on track and get everything synced up again. So he said that's why it's always good to have a dog in a movie because when in doubt, cut to the cut dog. Cut to the dog. Just cut. So every time you People see are them cut to the dog, by the dog yeah. every time you see them, every time you cut to the dog in the movie, that is Robert Rodriguez like frantically getting the magnetic tape back together in the editing room. It's fucking great. The movie holds up really quite good. Uh, it is just a masterwork of low budget filmmaking, and it's also just. A great film. Like, it's a legitimately great action movie. Uh, so, yeah, Desperado is also great. See them both. But for me, El Mariachi is still the king of the hill. Okay. I hope you see it someday. Uh, I think you'll really like I, it. I, I have no comment. Uh, I, I, yeah. saw De- I saw Desperado. I saw Once Upon a Time in Mexico, which yeah. is technically the third film in sort of that yeah, series. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Um, I like Desperado. <laughs> Desperado's great. Desperado's really awesome. I think uh, there's some... I, I think just like the actual like heart of the story, like there's a really good, very sexy romance between Salma Hayek and uh, Antonio Banderas in that movie. Okay, like you, really... you don't need to say any more. I know it's like two of the most attractive. People I know on there's this there's planet. like a scene where they're having uh, sex and he is taking like the spur on his boot and he is like, rolling it roll, sexily rolling over the curve of her body, body. Yeah. and it's like oh my god, holy shit, what the fuck? Ah! And like it's it's mm. it's fucking incredible. The one sad thing about uh, Desperado is the villain in the film was supposed to be played by Raul Julia. But his health was failing and he couldn't do it. Uh, And so I I do think, as as good as the villain is in that movie, I do think Raul Julia would have made it ten times better. (laughs) He was one of the great actors, period. He was so fucking great. Uh, So that's a bit of a downer, and I think the ending is a little too sudden for its own good, but Mm. whatever. It's a really cool action movie. Oh, Raul Julia. No, 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 I'm just sad. I know. Watch Kiss of the Spider Woman. He's excellent. I've never seen Kiss of the Spider Woman. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, Yeah, he's he's excellent in that movie. I'm not surprised. I loved... uh, He he, uh, won an Emmy... Shortly after he died, like mm-hmm. for the movie that came out, like shortly after he died, and his, I guess his wife uh, came up on stage to accept the award, and I loved it. She gave it a thing. It's like he, he, Raul used to watch these uh, award ceremonies at home on TV, and every single time he said, "If I ever win one of those things, I'm going to go up there and thank myself." <laughs> <laughs> and I can imagine him doing it too. He would have, he would have won over hearts. He would not have seemed egotistical coming from Raul Julia. <laughs> anyway, what you got next? Uh, I, I also have a, a low budget. No, this is actually a big, huge, uh, oh, large budget, mainstream Hollywood studio picture uh, that was 30 years in the making. Oh, my God. Um, yeah. Production on this film began in 1963. And uh, it took a long time. It was. Um, I oh, I know what you're um, 
Paul Deck Pfefferberg mm. uh, went to uh, studios and said, I want to tell the st- uh, World War II story. Yeah. Uh, because uh, somebody saved me in World War II. I want to tell yeah. a story. And uh, the studio said, like, no, he ended up talking to uh, an author named uh, Thomas mm-hmm. Keneally, I think it was his name, mm-hmm. who ended up writing a, a bio- biography of this person. And, yeah. uh, and this was in, like, the early 80s. And uh, 1983, uh, a young hotshot uh, filmmaker who had had a bunch of hits at that point named Steven Spielberg mm. said, hey, I want to do this movie. But... Spielberg said, I'm not good enough to make this movie. Yeah. Like, he'd already made films like Raiders of the Lost Ark and E.T. and Jaws, like these big action-adventure blockbusters, big hits. But they were not, like, these, like, deeply emotional, serious dramas. No. He was making a lot of escapist movies in a lot of ways, which I actually think is, is... Honestly, Spielberg selling himself a little short. I think there's a lot of really good emotional stuff in those movies, but mm. at that point, I think he differentiated between serious drama and like movies about man-eating sharks and aliens. Yeah, yeah, whatever. Uh, so he, he said, "I'm going to make this movie in ten years. Mm. I, I'll, I'll start shooting this in ten years." Of course, he was still completely scared to make it. Yeah, uh, Scorsese was going to make it. Mm-hmm. Polanski was going to make it. Yep. Uh, De Palma was going to make <laughs> okay, it. Okay, that one I can't imagine. I can imagine Scorsese doing a pretty decent job, although I think uh, he was the one who said, it, I, it, it, a Catholic can't do this movie. Yeah, yeah. And uh, uh, Roman Polanski, bad idea for a variety of reasons. Uh, well, he said, poem, he, I can't imagine. Well, he said, I, I, I can't make this movie. This is too close to home for me. Um, because his family he, actually escaped the the, uh, the, the, yeah. the, the, the camps. Right, and, uh, but regardless, it's still Roman Polanski. But uh, I, I, the poem, I can't imagine. No. De Palma is not a sensitive filmmaker. <laughs> Absolutely that not. That has never been what he does best. He's, he, he's a great he's, he's filmmaker, a but he's not a filmmaker. He's not a he's not a heartful, thoughtful yeah. filmmaker, and I cannot imagine for the life of me Brian De Palma's Schindler's list. Yeah. Um uh, Spielberg was working on another adventure picture, uh, Jurassic Park. Yep, about same year. Dinosaurs, same year. Came and the same year. Uh, That's a hell of a year. And he said, you know what? I, I really gotta get started on this movie. Uh, George Lucas, come in real quick. Finish up this Jurassic Park thing for me. Uh-huh. George Lucas oversaw the post-production of Jurassic Park. Yeah. And he says, I'm going to make this uh, this thing that's actually really very dear to me. And the film is called Schindler's List. Yeah. It's a biography of Oscar Schindler. But more than that, it's just sort of an experience film mm. about the horrors of World War II. Yeah. There hadn't been uh, a lot of actual World War II movies especially in the Hollywood machine mm. that directly dramatized the specific events of the Holocaust. It was mostly right. action pictures or if they were referenced, the, uh, it was a little bit more oblique. Yeah. The, uh, actual, uh, the world war two films that we've been watching recently for only the best, the best yeah. picture nominee podcast we do, uh, have all been, uh, soldiers experiences, very, yeah. uh, gung ho, Typically very positive yeah. uh, about sort of the soldier's experience was hard but survivable. Yeah. Uh, curiously, like people were sad when they got home, but, you know, with the right family and love, tender loving care, it'll be fine. They, they, they kind of got yeah. over it. It's kind of odd that we went from the best years of our lives to something like 12 o'clock high, which is like <sighs> totally the opposite. It's so fucking weird. Uh, yeah. And yeah, uh, actually, you know, in, in high school in the 1990s, we learned all about the Holocaust. Yeah, me too. And we learned all about the camps. Yeah. And we learned all about... We watched documentaries yeah, the, about the, it. The, we, the yeah. horrors suffered upon the Jewish people and uh, the the atrocities committed by the Nazis. And, we yeah, we saw, like, documentaries and that. And yeah. we went to the Museum of Tolerance. And uh, into, into the middle of all of that, as a teenager, mm. came Schindler's List. Yeah. 
a studio film that punched everyone in the gut and was a hit. It was yeah. so weird that everyone like were excited to go see Schindler's List. And I, I understand, though, because it felt important. It really did. Uh, it was and, a huge And film. it felt important because Steven Spielberg wanted to make sure he was accurate, mm-hmm. that he was respectful to the survivors. The yeah. Schindlerjuden were the, the yeah. people that Oscar Schindler saved. Oscar Schindler is played by Liam Neeson in the movie. Mm-hmm. Big uh, breakout role for Liam Neeson. He'd been in things, but this was yeah, no, like, he was not as famous as Like he was in that. Dark Man. That's, you know, yeah. not, that wasn't a huge hit. No. But uh, yeah, he... He if you're plays, not if you're uh, familiar with the story, uh, Oscar Schindler. I was, was yeah. going to say. Oh, sorry, yeah. you go. Yeah, yeah. Oscar Schindler was uh, a, a rich, uh, rich German who, at some point, had a crisis of conscience about World War II and was able to, using his business acumen as subterfuge, mm-hmm. claim that he was hiring Jewish citizens to work essentially as slaves in his factory. Yeah, and his when, factory was like making like ammunition. Yeah, so it's basically, so that, I'm going to take these people out of the camps. And I want to use them to make bullets to help the Nazi party. Uh, and what he was doing was hiding them and yeah. keeping them safe from being murdered in the camps. Yeah. And he wasn't making good bullets. No. Like, that was the other thing. That was the other thing. It's like he was all, on top of it all. He was also he wasn't yeah, actually also helping. stymieing the war Yeah. And honestly, pretty pretty amazing story. Yeah. Pretty amazing yeah, and, story. And yeah. he was able to save hundreds yeah. of lives this way. Um, there's a scene near the end of Schindler's List yeah. when the war is over. Yeah, when he pulls off a ring that he's wearing on his finger, and says, "The money I got, I could have gotten for this ring, could have bought another person," yeah. and he just breaks down. It's one of the most heartbreaking scenes in yeah. in, a, in a mainstream movie. I remember, uh, I remember there was some critique when the movie came out that that was almost too much. Like we didn't need it. Yeah, at the end because the movie's so heavy, and it is. It's really, really uh, well. Heavy. I mean, you you see all of the atrocities yeah. close up. Yeah, uh, no, they they do not shy away. It's really intense. Um. I haven't watched this movie in a really long time. I'm glad you picked it. I'm glad you picked it because okay. I have nothing but admiration for this film. There, mm-hmm. you know, any quibbles I have would be irrelevant. I think it actually really does confront something intensely difficult to dramatize mm-hmm. in a way that is even watchable because yeah, it's such I, a horrible, it's such a horrible, it's, horrible, it's, inhumane, it's such, inhuman uh, thing that happened. It's such difficult yeah. subject matter. And uh, yeah. and move. There are endless movies about World War II, and yeah. endless movies about the horrors of World War II. Yeah, and in the wake of Schindler's List, we did have more movies that directly mm-hmm. talked about the Holocaust. Not many, yeah, but more. We'd had we had plenty of documentaries beforehand, yeah. but in terms of narrative fiction, we had more. One from Roman Polanski. Yeah. Uh, Do you ever see that movie Bent? No. Uh, yeah, it's bent. based on a play. It's about. Yeah. Um, uh, persecution of gay men by the Nazis. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah that's, that's a really sense. good one. What was the son? Was it Son of Saul? Oh, that was the, yeah, yeah that was long. that was really good. Um, so yeah, it's but the, the, yeah. in fact the stories of the horrors of World War II started to become so common that they were joked about. Yeah. Uh, there's a rather famous, I think it's the show Extras, the yeah. Ricky Gervais show, where is, yeah. Kate Winslet appears in that show playing herself. Mm-hmm. and But she's playing like a cynical version of herself. And yeah, she she's, says, she's oh, making I, a World War II movie. I, I'm making this World War II movie just because I want awards. You make a World War II movie, you well, get awards. And but, then a few years later, she she did that. She was in a movie called The Reader yeah. and won an Academy well, Award for For many that. years, the joke was that Kate Winslet was like, she, she was like the best actress who'd never won an Academy Award. And she was mm-hmm. nominated constantly. Yeah, And she was always amazing. And every single time she got nominated. And then the one time she got nominated for a movie that wasn't good and she wasn't great in she <laughs> did play a nazi and she won an academy yeah. award it was so, pretty fucking weird i, I, yeah. I feel like uh, 
by the time we got to something like life is beautiful, yeah. it's like, wait a minute, we've, we've gone too far in the other direction now. We've normalized this too much. We're trying to make sort of like a touching comedy film. I feel like life it's, is beautiful is a weird example because I feel like they were really trying to make something kind of interesting where again, life seems really, really great. And you can be completely oblivious to all of the political machinations that are going to lead to all this horror yeah. until it's too late. And then they're trapped in it. And mm. I feel like it kind of overplayed its hand in the second half. But I kind of like the idea of doing the bifurcated story. Oh, yeah, where it's it, like, like a love story at first. And a yeah, love like story that, that's end, kind yeah. of interesting. But I, I, there's a that's a controversial film in a wide variety of ways. And mm. I'm still amazed it won as many Oscars as it did. <laughs> but, um, but no, yeah, Schindler's Sh- List is incredible. There's a fantastic yeah, Sh- Sh- Schindler's List is the one time yeah. where we're permitted to not be cynical yeah. about the Hollywood machine. And, you know, a, a yeah. populist actually did film- something good. Yeah, a populist yeah. filmmaker like Spielberg um, sort of, um, I feel like he had a few turning points in his career, and Schindler's List was one of them. Oh, well, hugely. Color so. Purple was one of them. Yeah. Uh, Schindler's List, he kind of, I think, finally matured. Mm-hmm. And then when Kubrick died. Yeah. In '99, yeah, you can and see a real big shift in Spielberg. Spielberg actually changed a lot because he finished AI, which yeah. was a Kubrick movie, and you can tell like the look of that film is really different. Mm-hmm. The pace of that film—he's trying to make a Kubrick-like movie, honestly. I think and even, in so doing, yeah. all of his movies after that are much different. I actually think you can almost see it a little earlier. He did the—he did another one where after um, he did Schindler's List and Jurassic Park in the same year. Then he yeah. went on to do uh, Saving Private Ryan, which is oh, a great he, movie. Well, he did Amistad first. I, 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 no, Amistad was second. Amistad was in 97, uh, Private Ryan was 98. Was it really? Yeah, Amistad came first. Okay, well, in any case, I, I see... I, um, I just want to schmo down. <laughs> no, 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 fair enough. Um, fair enough. Uh, I, I'm not even going to look it up, I'm sure you're right. Uh, but, um, uh, uh, but Amistad was him trying to be earnest, well, and I feel that one's kind of mawkish. Well, I, I feel like, I feel like no, because I was going to bring up that Amistad was another twofer. And uh, he's done a couple of these where he did two movies in a year. He's yeah. done them multiple times. He did it with uh, Schindler's List and Jurassic Park. He did it with Amistad and The Lost, Lost World. World yeah, which he didn't want to make from what no, I understand. No, and you watch the movie and it really fucking feels like it. Yeah. Uh, and then he did another one with Catch Me If You Can and... Was it The Terminal that year? He did another uh, one around that. He did uh, another yeah. one around that. But um, Amistad, there's a really good filmmaking in Amistad, but it feels like... It's spending way too much time with Matthew McConaughey and Anthony Hopkins, and like the, the focus is all wrong. Yeah, but there's still some good stuff in it. Um, and the Lost World feels like he's just forced to do a sequel. And there's a few moments of inspiration in it because he's Spielberg; he can't help but try to do something interesting. But mm-hmm. mostly, it sucks. Let's see, he he did ET and. Mm-hmm. Rumor, uh, rumor has it that he also did Poltergeist no, the didn't. same year. No, no that was Toby. I've, I've talked. I've talked to people who made that movie. No, he didn't. Right. Yeah, <laughs> no. Jurassic Park, Schindler's List, Lost okay. World, Amistad. Um, yeah, Minority Report and Catch Him If You Can. That was the Those other one. Were in the that, same that's year. a good. That's a good double feature too. By the way, yeah. those are great fucking movies. I but love yeah. Minority but Report. But I, I just feel like I see with like with like the Lost World, I can see him getting a little bored with some of the old shtick he used to do so easily. Yeah. And yeah. then you see from like AI onward, he's making movies. Some of them are crowd pleasers. Mm. But they're not fun the way they used to be. Even his War of the Worlds is like super intense it's, and dark it, and depressing. It's really dour. It's it's really strangely focused. Um, 
a, a critic named Andy Klein, who I admire a lot, pointed out that mm. uh, War of the Worlds works best if you consider it as a fantasy yeah. in the head of Tom Cruise's character. Yeah. That he wants to save his kids, and the only way he can think to do that is the sort of fantasy scenario where aliens attack. I also think it's one of the more, it's allegorical, but I think it's also one of the more direct films in the immediate wake of 9-11 to try to yeah. deal with yeah. the way that... It's a disaster movie that had the kind of emotional intensity that we were experiencing as a country. Um, it's an interesting film. I don't think it quite works, but I think it's very, yeah, there's you, really good you, stuff in You there. can tell after that when he started doing adventure films like uh, Indiana Jones, Crystal Skull, yeah. or, or Tintin. Like he's, yeah. When he's just sort of like playing around with digital tools and doing action, like his heart's not really It doesn't seem like he's really excited it. about it, yeah. But then uh, when he does something like Lincoln, yeah. <laughs> his heart is back in And I kind of like Tintin, but it's 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 just kind of an interesting exercise. Yeah. Anyway, um, I would probably have picked Schindler's List if I'd watched it more recently. But I didn't feel like I could carry a conversation about it with like the kind of like immediacy it needed. Mm-hmm. Which is how I feel about some of the other films on my runners-up as well. Um, on that note, my next film is another film from a, a pretty amazing filmmaker. Guy who's won a couple of Academy Awards. And it's a film that even though... I feel like a lot of his movies are making a lot of people's lists of their favorite movies or some of the best Oscar winners, etc. This one doesn't get talked about very much. Ang Lee's The Wedding Banquet. Oh, interesting. I haven't, I have not seen The Wedding Banquet. Oh, it's great. It's, I, I, it's, and I love Ang Lee. Yeah, yeah Ang Lee's great. Uh, I think it was his second film. His first film was not available in America for a long time, but it's really good. It's called Pushing Hands. Hmm. You ever see that? No. That's incredible. Hmm. It's, a, it's a very low-budget, intimate character drama about a father who uh, moves in uh, with his son in America, uh, and he's a he's, he used to teach Tai Chi, and now he's retired, and he expects his son to just do what he would do in his normal country, which is take care of him in his old age. And what he doesn't mm-hmm. realize is that his son has married an American, they live a very American existence, and what he expected of his son is no longer what his son is able to provide. And so now, as an as an old old man, like he's he's I mean he's he's got some energy to him, but he, he was ready to retire and just uh-huh. sit out the rest of his days. He has to start over, and it's really really tough. It's not an action movie, but the Tai Chi does become important in one amazing moment that is not a fight scene at all, but it is absolutely an amazing example of using martial arts to tell a story. Mm. Uh, and I love Pushing Hands a lot. I think it's really great. It came out before this, though. He also did this movie, The Wedding Banquet, which is absolutely wonderful and very, very cool. It'll make a great double feature with Brokeback Mountain, I think. Um, the Wedding Banquet is a film about uh, a Taiwanese immigrant uh, who is living in America with his boyfriend. Mm. And uh, he ends up, because his very uh, conservative, very old-fashioned parents want to see him married before they die, he agrees to marry uh, someone, a, a young woman in his building who just happens to need a green card. So it's a marriage of absolute, total convenience. <clears throat> but in order to uh, sell the lie, in order to, to push the ruse, uh, they end up in, in... In other hands, this would be a very wacky, kind of the birdcage kind of comedy. Uh-huh. Lots of misunderstandings, but it's actually very kind of sad... Because here are people who are just absolutely hiding who they are for the sake of tradition. Mm. And what we realize over the course of the film is that those traditions matter, even to, to like the parents, even if the parents might catch wind of it. 
Hmm. And so the question is, who, who are we really doing this for anyone? Is it, are we just conning ourselves? Like, what's the point anymore? And it's a really interesting film about that sort of, like, dividing line between... Excuse me. <coughs> Sorry, that cough I was talking about before is mm-hmm. not all gone, unfortunately. Oof. Rough cold. That's all it is. It's cold. Um, but it's a great film about sort of the meeting of tradition and uh, the start of, of new traditions and also the building of a very unusual, uh, very uh, uh, found family. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really romantic while also being really, really sad because it's about hiding that romance. And it is about trying to force a romance where none could possibly exist. Yeah. Um, huge compromises are made and big revelations are made. And it's just a really interesting, really sensitive... It, it's it's technically comedy, you will laugh, but it's you'll feel so much more than that mm-hmm. that I don't want to label it a comedy. Yeah. It's, just, it's into this really interesting nebulous space. Uh, it's really fucking great. I hope more people see it. Because I don't think they do enough, right. uh, and it's uh, it's just a really really great queer film. So, yeah, I, I want to see that movie. now. I hope you do. It's really uh, I'm, really. I'm, I'm a big fan of Ang Lee, even when he's not doing interesting work. Uh, just because yeah. he's a, a very ambitious filmmaker who try, tries out different genres and strange things and working with different people. This is the you know he made uh, the wedding banquet, but he also made uh, Ride with the Devil, which is a civil war drama, and yep. he also did a superhero film uh, called Hulk, which is a which, weird fucking film. Which that was I, his follow up to Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. That's right, he made Crouch, which he could have like, done won Academy he Awards. He could have done anything he lured wanted. Lured a Hollywood machine, and he made a movie about the Incredible Hulk. It was very strange, so fucking weird. Uh, he did Life of Pi, which is this very, yeah. very strange conversation about uh, sort of the, the function of faith. Yeah. Brokeback Mountain, one of the great romances. Oh, yeah, excellent romance. Sense and film. Sensibility, probably from my, from my money, the gold standard of Jane Austen feature film adaptations. Uh, there's the there's, did, the there's uh, the Colin Firth Pride and Prejudice TV miniseries mm. that might be the gold standard overall, but for okay, me, there's, sensibility. There's about part. like 15 seconds where he stands up in that white shirt That's out, the whole of, out of the fountain. You don't need to watch any more. You don't. No. <laughs> Just Colin Farrell in the white shirt. Um, he did a film called Lust Caution. I never saw Lust uh, Caution, which is frankly a little dull, but. Mm. Um, even with all of the the sexy sexiness, uh, it, it's rated NC seventeen. There's a lot yeah. of sex in the movie because uh, it's about lust, and it's yeah. It's, it, is it cautiously it's, about it's, lust? It's a little boring. So it sounds very cautious. Uh, I suppose so. Huh. I mean, what, what, eventually they throw caution to the winds and you go for see the that, lust part. You ever see that Dimitri Martin comedy he did, Taking Woodstock? No, I didn't That's see that a one. Weird entry in the filmography, isn't it? I've never yeah. seen it either. Anyway, and, he's and, got and a now, really interesting. But now he's really also uh, he's also working with like he fell he fell in that sort of tech pool. Now he's like kind of toying with uh, high frame rates. His last yeah. couple of movies have been Billy Lynn's mm-hmm. Long Halftime Walk and Gemini Man, and I didn't mm-hmm. see either. I saw Gemini Man in theaters and the high frame rate. Uh-huh. And was it just, amazing? Uh, no, no, uh-huh. no. Uh, it's it, it fell into that trap that everybody complained about how those high frame rates look. Artificial because the that look that frame rate uh, is typically applied to like sporting events or yeah. news programs or reality TV. Yeah. So it looked really kind of fake, but like also yeah. hyper real. Yeah, uh, and yeah, it just didn't didn't feel or look from, cinematic. For me, it looks like motion smoothing is on. Mm-hmm. Like at, at, even at yeah. its best, it's not great. Yeah, I, f- I feel like the new Avatar did it best, but you know, I, so I th- far th- I do I do think they did it best, but I do think they haven't cracked the code yet. I think mm-hmm. Avatar. 
when you do that high frame rate and mm-hmm. everything becomes absolutely crystal clear, um, it becomes more imperative on you, especially in a big screen in the theater, mm-hmm. uh, to guide the audience's eye constantly. Yeah, because if, there's too much if, information. If, if everything is is completely <clears throat> in sharp focus, you don't know where you're supposed to be looking. Exactly, somewhere. and especially considering yeah. how quickly everything is edited together nowadays. Mm-hmm. By the time you figured out who's talking and where you're supposed to be looking at on the big screen, you've cut away, oh, wow. and it's just. It's not the best solution. I think you have to completely change your cinematic language in order to adjust for it. Yeah. 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 Somebody, I think, I mean, I might eat my words on this, but I do think that's kind of where a lot of studio films are going to be going. (laughs) I think that high frame rate is the next thing. Everybody said about digital projection as well. It's it's interesting, though, because, and again, this this is very subjective, but I remember when Avatar came out in 2009, everyone... Even the people who weren't even high on the movie said <coughs> that. Excuse me. That, ugh, ugh, don't get a cold. I highly recommend it. Um, everyone was glowing about the 3D. This is the most amazing 3D. I don't hear people really raving about the high frame rate specifically. To mm. the extent that I wonder if Hollywood studio execs are really thinking the high frame rate is what brought people into theaters. I don't think it was. Hmm. I think it was Avatar. I think the 3D helped. I think the high frame rate was interesting. But I don't know if the high frame rate is going to bring anyone back the way that because everyone's like, oh, oh I want to see, I want to see a movie that gives me what I got in Avatar: The Way of Water. Give me a high frame rate, <laughs> Quantum Mania. Like I don't really see anyone doing that. But I've been wrong before. Oh God, that Quantum Mania movie is coming. That's soon, coming out soon. Yeah, 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 we're gonna have to deal with that. I'm seeing it in a couple weeks. So am I. Yeah. So am I. Anyway, we should move on. Uh, what's it? We have two left. What's your second to last? Part? Uh, I, I feel so churlish talking about this film after I've already talked about Schindler's List. Well, again, uh, we're not ranking them. These are all just no, recommendations. No, no. Just um, so, so we're clear. Uh, yeah. So Schindler's List. Uh, th- this is a, a film by a filmmaker who I'm very fond of. Mm. Uh, what, he comes out, and most of his films I'm very impressed by, uh, and he tends to operate in the realm of nostalgia. Mm. He looks to the past a lot. Uh, and he made a film about his high school experience, mm. uh, not about himself specifically, about his age group uh, oh. as he was graduating high school in 1976. Uh-huh. Uh, the film was called Dazed and Confused. The okay. filmmaker is Richard Linklater. Yeah. Uh, and Richard Linklater is one of the few filmmakers who I feel can do nostalgia right. Mm. Uh, there's a lot of films I've seen that sort of look back uh, at, at the childhood of the screenwriter mm. or the childhood of the director. And there's a wistfulness about it, about something bygone, something yeah. glorious has been lost. Uh, look at something like Stand By Me. Looks to the yeah. 1950s. Kind of a dirty time. There's Those a lot of abuse and horrible, but yeah. yeah. But, uh, but I had really great friends and they're gone now yeah. and something tragic has happened that's lost. Uh, you look at something like American Graffiti, yeah. which George Lucas made. Oh, that's, that's a very uh, romanticized version of the 19... 19- I think it's really '60s, technically, but yeah. right around that time, though. 50s, yeah, sort 60s. of car yeah. culture. When, yeah, when George Lucas was a young yeah. man. Uh, Richard Linklater has none of that wistfulness. No, that's true. Uh, he looks. He gets all the iconography right, which is part of why people make these nostalgic movies. Mm-hmm. They want to sort of recreate a lot of the images of their youth. And ironically, I think uh, what they end up doing for a lot of people is for like newer generations, sort of mm-hmm. defining what that look is. Yeah, I think for yeah. a lot of people, like I was born in '82. Hmm. I wasn't there for the seventies, but when I think of the seventies, I think of Days and Confused. Because that, that's yeah, just that's, that's, that's just what, what like, I yeah. imagine it looks that's, like. That, that's you exactly know? what nineteen seventy six yeah. looks like. There's a scene uh, in, in an opening in the opening montage of the movie where uh, I, 
a young woman is putting on a pair of pants. Yeah. But the fashion dictates that the pants be as tight as possible. Right. So a friend of hers is using a pair of pliers to pull her fly up. Right. Like she can't pull it up any other now, way. And, the irony and is then that... she needs, like it's so tight around her section, she can't bend to get up. So she needs to be like lifted up straight. Yeah. But and the thing that, is, that's what I think of. Yeah. I that's think the even, 70s. Even when Days and the Fe- I saw Days and Confused in theaters with my parents. Oh. Like, and I, I'd already seen 70s movies. I'd seen Rock and Roll High School. I'd seen some Black Spotation ones. I'd seen... Uh-huh. Movies made during the 70s, but none of those films were trying to, like, typify the 70s. Mm. They weren't trying to just say, that's the 70s. All of it. Whole decade. Yeah. Days of Confused, even though it takes place over the course of one day, does seem to pull that off. <laughs> and it's pretty impressive on that, yeah. on that uh, level, yeah. The, the, the characters are... Um... The actual like plot of the of the movie is actually pretty freewheeling, mm. and uh, what I was going to say is that it's a Richard, plot to speak of, really. No, it's just the last night yeah. before summer vacation. It's basically, and, yeah. American graffiti, but with fewer set pieces. Yeah, it was like, Kinda. what's the set piece? We're just going to go to the football field and yeah. scream a little bit. Yeah, there's no drag race. There's no like tying the fender to the fire there, hydrant. There's, or whatever. A, there's, no, there's no speaking to Wolfman Jack. There's a running bit where uh, the younger kids have to be hazed. And the oh, seniors are running around with like spanking paddles. It's, it's Ben yeah. Affleck with like a with like a big Whalen, like a big two by four. Yeah, yeah just gonna... Ben Affleck just trying to beat and, some uh, kids in the butt. It's really fucking weird. One of the graduating kids has grown a little tired of the shenanigans yeah. and refuses to participate. So that and he sort of befriends some of the younger kids. So there's there's a bit of an arc there. A little bit. Yeah, um, everyone's got bits. But what Richard Linklater does, and what I wish more filmmakers would do, is pay attention to the talk. Yeah. The moments where people are just having conversations. Yeah. Not a dialogue that advances the plot. Not dialogue that is confessional. Just capturing the way people converse and talk about interesting things. Because when you listen to people, they say interesting things. Yeah. So that's what a lot of Dazed and Confused and a lot of Linklater films in general are devoted to. Is just speaking. He's made a couple movies which are just conversation. Yeah. The Beyond movies are just conversation. Sure. Uh, Waking Life oh, yeah. is technically just conversation. Yeah. Uh, um, uh, Slacker. Slacker is... Yeah. One of the best films of the '90s, as far as I'm concerned, Slacker is just conversation. Yeah, and it's and again, we're not using the conversation. The conversation is the point. And R- Richard Linklater tends to know, seems to know this, and I think this was born out of maybe financial necessity. Mm. It's like I don't have a lot of budget. I can't do big things, but I can take a camera and follow people around as they say interesting stuff. Yeah, because I know interesting people. Yeah, and that's it. That's all he needed. And I feel like when he got to Dazed and Confused, he kind of did a stoner comedy version of that. So there's there's a little bit of a broadness to it. And there's definitely People a mainstream gonna, yeah. appeal to it. This was, yeah, was the, uh, I don't know if it was a hit, but I remember everyone around me really liking it. Yeah, um, uh, Matthew McConaughey plays like the pervy old guy who's still hanging around the high school kids. He's yeah. got that, that notorious line of dialogue. I love high school girls. I keep getting older. They stay the same age. Like, get yeah. away from you, creep. Yeah, it's uh, like it's sort of, sort of thing where it's like, I think we're supposed to laugh at that, but we're not actually well, going to, we, right? We laugh at it because it's like kind of a sick thing to say, but he's like so sincere yeah. about it. And it's weird. I think he, he, he actually has a bit where it's like it's him. He's got like one moment with him and Renee Zellweger in that movie. Mm. And then they went on to co-star in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre: The Next Generation. Yeah, this movie's great, by the way. It's fucking abysmal. Abysmally great. <laughs> like that movie, I hate is, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I, I kind of like it as like a, like imagine if like a, a a small community college did a very low budget <laughs> theater production of a Texas Chainsaw Massacre sequel uh, that they came up with themselves in an afternoon, right. and it was mostly ad libbed. That's that yeah, movie. Yeah, you're I kind of like that. It well. I think it's great. <laughs> 
I think it's great. I love it. Um, and, and the Texas murder family is like tools for the CIA. Yeah, and Matthew McConaughey has robot legs. That he controls with a TV remote. He does. It's great. <laughs> movie is shit. I love it. The, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre movies are some of the most up and down horror movie franchise. Yeah, the quality just shifts wildly you know, from film to film. What one is up, two is still kind of up. It's and, a, and up, the, up, but in a very different place. Like It just yeah. shifts to the right 20 miles. Um, uh, but in any case, Days and Confused is one of the, the, you know, you pick some movies that I haven't seen. Uh-huh. You picked a lot of movies that I'm like, I love this movie and I totally respect it and it came very close to my list. It was like Heart and Souls, Much Ado, mm. Wrong Trousers, Dead Alive, show this list. And there's Days and Confused. A movie I respect more than I like. You don't like Days and Confused? Not a, I don't dislike it, but uh-huh. there's something about it. I remember even when I was a kid watching it, I'm like... I really appreciate how transportive the movie feels, uh-huh. how particular it is. It feels, again, I wasn't there, but it feels accurate. Yeah. You know? I just, so many of the characters are just people I don't want to hang out with. And that's oh. really all it is. That's really all it is. And yeah. that's, not, that's not even a critique of the film. That's just, uh-huh. a, that's just a very personal thing. When it's a hangout movie... And you're just, and we've seen tons of those movies like Clerks or Suburbia or whatever. Or Slacker. Slacker's a good one. There's so many films out there that are basically just hangout movies. If you don't want to hang out with those people, it can feel like you're hanging out with people you don't want to hang out with. And it's a big ensemble and some bits I like more than others, but overall wasn't great. It wasn't until I saw Everybody Wants Some, which is kind of like Mm. a spiritual sequel to that. It's not really, but it's like takes us over like a weekend of there's Mm. some high school kids in the 70s are going to college. Um, That's the movie that when I saw that, I'm like, oh, is this what everyone else thought when they saw Dazed and Confused? (laughs) Because I love Everybody Wants Some. I think that movie's wonderful. Which which is weird because it's like such more like aggressively caustic characters. I know, but there's something about it that feels more... Like guys... Baseball guys playing like jockstrap jokes on each other. They are, but there's, there's, there's. I'm not criticizing the movie. Actually, I also really love everybody wants some. I, I don't feel, I don't feel even like the 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 more like macho bro dudes and everybody wants something. I don't feel like the hatred that I feel from the Ben Affleck character in Dens and Days and Confused where like that's really all he is is just evil yeah well like, he, he's like the antagonist I, I get it one in that movie, I get it know? I'm not even criticizing the film I just there's something about that I just don't want to see him I'm not interested in him I don't like him whereas I feel like even the characters who I wouldn't want to hang out with in person and everybody wants some I get to see sides of them I wouldn't otherwise see and I like them more than I would have probably otherwise mm-hmm. I find that movie sensitivity to be a little, just handled a little differently. Right. Um, I love Everybody Wants Some. I respect Dazed and Confused. I know uh, why it is great. Uh-huh. I've, I've seen it again not that long ago just because, mm-hmm. like, oh, everyone likes it. I should watch it. Yeah, like, it, I appreciate it. No, it's it's well, not for it's, me. It, it's about kids, and it's about kids yeah. doing kind of, like, foolish things. And a lot of them are wasted a lot of the time. True. Um, oh, who's the actor who, uh, uh-huh. the stoner kid who was also in Empire Records? Oh, I really love him. That actor. Yeah, um, hold on. You see, he did not end up becoming like the big thing I thought he would. He, he should have. He's, yeah. he's really freaking uh, funny. But uh, is yeah, it Rory Cochran? Rory Cochran. That's him. Yeah, yeah. yeah he he played like the funny stoner guy, and everybody yeah. wants some. It's yeah. like I, I really respected uh, Martha Washington because she always had like a, a big fat bowl waiting for George Washington when he got like he's always talking about weed. Yeah. Yeah. And then you you cut to him in uh, Empire Records. He's like kind of much more of a, an uptight well, character, well, but he's more sort of a beatnik in that movie. Yeah. <laughs> like it's just very. It, 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 he's a good. I, he's fun. I like him. Yeah, a lot. He's, he's really really funny. Yeah. Also, Renee Zellweger is in Empire Records too. Uh, she was everywhere. 
just just waiting to break out. Um, okay, my my second to last pick uh, is a film that I deeply love, and it's another film. It's weird. I didn't really think of this, but a lot of my films are films from uh, directors who would become big later. Okay. Uh, people like uh, Robert Rodriguez or, or Ang Lee, and this is another one where and this is a filmmaker who has made a lot of movies since. Some were big hits, some were not. Some won Oscars, a lot of them didn't. And yet, part of me feels like he may have kind of peaked at his first film, and that's uh, Guillermo del Toro's Kronos. Oh, I, I was thinking about Kronos. But, um, I love Kronos. I didn't I, used I, to love Kronos. I, I like Kronos. Yeah, I, I used to like Kronos. All right. And when I saw it initially, because I, I saw Kronos, there was a moment where vampire movies were suddenly really in in the 90s indie scene and we were getting a lot of films like Nadia and The Addiction those are great movies by the way see both of those movies Um, Nadia's really interesting Nadia's really interesting The Addiction is really smart I think The Addiction is really underrated Um, but uh, yeah Kronos was a film it was a big breakout movie for for Guillermo del Toro and it was one of those movies where there's actually a bit I think if uh, in this episode of True Blood where (laughs) Uh, there, there's like a flashback to like some of the vampire characters, like in the '80s, no, in, the, in like the mid '90s, right. and they were running a video store, like that was the front for <laughs> for whatever they were doing. And uh, someone, okay, wait, stop. I know. Why isn't that the series? I know, right? <laughs> that sounds like the only love is left alive. The vampire like, video store right? is the show I want to see. But there's like a moment where like someone comes in, and it's like, hey, what's the best vampire movie you got? And they're like, Kronos. <laughs> <laughs> That's cute. It's really cute. Um, Kronos is a story about an old man. He's a grandfather. Uh, his kid isn't in the picture, and he's taking care of his little granddaughter at the antique store that he runs. Hey, two movies about antique stores. Weird. Um, he runs across a really, really old scarab, and it looks like a like a token, but it's actually a clockwork machine, and when he winds it up, it stabs him, and it infects him with something that turns him very slowly into a vampire. Mm. And there's a whole plot about how there's like this rare antiquities collector who knows about this thing, and he's dying, and he wants to get it before he dies, and it builds to like an almost like a Highlander ending, like this big kind of epic set piece with Ron Perlman. It's pretty cool. But the heart and soul of it is an old man who is dying or worse, worried that he's becoming dangerous and mm-hmm. doesn't feel comfortable being around his daughter anymore or his granddaughter anymore. Yeah. Here's the person that he's treating like his daughter. He's raising them. He loves them with all of his heart. They love him with all of their heart. But he doesn't, he, he's afraid to be around them either because they're going to see him transform into something monstrous, you know, a metaphor a la David Cronenberg's The Fly. Or he's going to do something unspeakable and lose and, and break her heart. Yeah, and that's the soul of the movie, and it is handled with such a deft, very mild hand. There's a wonderful scene where we've seen this bit in the movie where uh, you know someone has been by a vampire and they're starting to feel the hunger, mm. and the question is like, well, how am I going to sate this hunger? And you'll see people like suck on raw steaks from the refrigerator, mm-hmm. or maybe they'll eat a, a, an animal outside. It's like really, really much. There's a bit, he's in a bathroom in like some public place, and some guy just cut himself a little bit, and a little drop just falls on the floor in the bathroom, <laughs> a public bathroom. And he just gradually just knows around, gets on his hands and knees, slowly unfurls his tongue, mm-hmm. just to get this one drop, and he's going to lovingly lick it up. And it's so 
I'm so I'm OCD enough that that is absolutely fucking repellent. Not just because it's blood, just because it's a bathroom floor, a public bathroom floor, no less. But any bathroom floor—that's the most disgusting thing I can think of. Oh god! You, but then it's but then it's blood. You should see that German film. Do you see Wetlands from? A I'm aware years ago? of Wetlands. Okay, I'm aware of. Wetlands. Watch Wetlands. That movie's like. To. It was like filthy bathrooms are yeah. like a, a main theme of that. I anyway. can't handle it, man. Like the scene where uh, where you and McGregor has to climb into a toilet and train. It's so disgusting. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Um, but Chronos uh, is beautiful, and I think the the thing that Chronos I think kind of unlocks for me, and it's something that I think I think there's a bit of a misunderstanding about Guillermo del Toro as a filmmaker, because a lot of people consider him like a quote unquote master of horror because mm. he makes a lot of horror movies, reproduces a lot of horror movies. He doesn't, I think. I don't think he makes horror movies. I think he makes fairy tales. That, he just makes very yeah, dark, yeah. original brand Grimm's fairy tales. And he uses the iconography of some famous movie monsters, but mm. he's not interested in telling like a bump in the night scary story. He's interested in telling something much older and even something like more conventional like Crimson Peak. Mm. He's not as interested in the horror in that movie as he is in the doomed romance. I. I wish he were, but uh, in, know, in a movie I like know. Crimson Peak, I, I, I respond to the yeah. dude romance in Crimson Peak. I just wish he hadn't relied on such like not very good CGI ghosts. Yeah, I feel like well, if he had actually had like just people like covered in blood running around rather than mm. CGI blood creations, yeah, that movie yeah. would have been a lot stronger. But whatever. Uh, I I feel like um, Guillermo del Toro is intensely interested in fairy tales. Look at yeah. Pan's Labyrinth, for goodness' sake. Yes, very much so. Um, but I feel like uh, his real interests uh, come to the surface when he makes movies in Spanish. And yeah. he's actually made more movies in English now. But yeah. his Spanish language films tend to have a lot... He seems tends to be uh, freer to work in a lot more uh, religious iconography. Yeah. And a lot more political iconography. That too. And I feel like uh, with Kronos, uh, with The Devil's Backbone especially, yeah. and with Pan's Labyrinth... He was exploring sort of the echoes of, weirdly enough, Franco. Yeah. He's a Mexican filmmaker, but he's talking about Franco. And uh, I feel like uh, sort of the circumstances under which uh, the old man found that scarab and sort of where it came from was meant to echo sort of a a political regime. Like it was Hmm. born of the evils of a past political regime and something that was meant to give... Uh, sort of like fascist youth hope is now when taken as uh, a nostalgic uh, drug essentially by an older person mm. is now making them realize that it's giving them life but it's also turning them into a creature yeah um, that, that's that's what I get out of I, I feel like I feel like it's much um, more mild in Kronos than it is in Devil's Backbone and Pan's Devil's, Labyrinth Devil's, Devil's Backbone and Pan's Labyrinth it's right up front it's yeah. kind of an undercurrent I, I feel like you could, you could watch Kronos uh, and just look at it as a story of, of yeah. aging and, mm. and, and you know, slow death and, yeah, and they, parenthood and all that kind of stuff. You can just you can get it without any of that. I think. Yeah, but it, it's I, in there. I, I feel like um, the the fairy tale stuff is the least interesting aspect for uh, Guillermo del Toro's movies for yeah. me uh, because the the whole the notion of the dark fairy tale is just not doesn't well, hold doesn't really hold my interest. Well, but, I think um, I think in a vacuum it wouldn't. I think when Guillermo yeah. del Toro is doing something interesting with it, it's interesting. Yeah, yeah. and I think again, he's but hit, I, I think I he's hit or miss. Was, I really um, do think so, but I think that's yeah. this one's a hit. It's like you know. There's you know a fine line between that and uh, I think it was a video game called just Alice, where it's like a horror, oh, horror yeah. movie version of it Alice was, in Wonderland. Alice, Alice uh, was like in the late '90s, early 2000s. Was a, it was a game where basically, hey, 
Alice in Wonderland, but what if she's a Tim Burton character? Yeah, what, what if it's like really fucked up and yeah, yeah. Tim Burton-y? It's like, oh, okay. Yeah. Ironically, it's better than Tim Burton's Alice in Wonderland. <laughs> At least it has more consistent and interesting vision, but it's still pretty like, just like, yeah, it feels like, yeah, like I took the lazy road on that. And adding horror movie death to a, a, a fairy tale is, it, it's such an adolescent notion that it, uh-huh. yeah, I just can't get behind it. You're looking forward to the Winnie the Pooh slasher next month? Okay, see, now that has, like, a, a jejun quality that I'm really <laughs> looking to savor. Um, yeah. Winnie the Pooh, uh, not a fairy tale, just, like, a kid's story. But I'm, fantastical. That's very tale type, type qualities. I, I, I just want to see Winnie the Pooh fucking people off. That's, yeah. yeah. Winnie the Pooh goes into the public domain uh, this year, and finally, uh, and uh, someone has already made a slasher about Winnie the Pooh, and Winnie the called, Pooh is a called, killer. It's called Winnie the Pooh. Blood and honey, and uh, it, yeah, they because they can use the name. Um, Disney Although they don't have the, Tigger. Oh, they don't have Tigger. Uh, Tigger wasn't introduced until a later book. I think it's like going to be another year or two before Tigger's in public domain. <laughs> okay, so you can't have you can't have Winnie the you can't have Tigger, but you do have Winnie the Pooh and you do have Piglet. Okay. Oh, I want to see Piglet killing people. That'd be oh fun. yeah, uh, you'd be so embarrassed. Pardon? You'd be so embarrassed. Like, oh, I'm so sorry. Oh, I'm so sorry. Stab. <laughs> oh, are these your guts? Oh no! Pull your head out. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that, it's it's a really stupid idea that I'm looking forward to. I, I, uh, I, I did Kronos. Um, yeah. It's it's not my favorite Del Toro movie. I think yeah. that's I, I'm the asshole. I think The Devil's Backbone is kind of his. his it's not an asshole movie. It's a great movie. Yeah. It's just not my favorite. It's it's uh, of, in my top five. I guess of his English language films, uh, kind of, they're super hit and miss with me. But yeah. um, uh, I I like his Hellboy just because that's a yeah. good mainstream superhero. I, I prefer Hellboy movie. too. I think um, Hellboy is brought down by a pretty limp script. Uh, like the character the, the, the in the world is, is really boring, but yeah I, yeah, I like the world and I like Hellboy and I like just sort of the way the characters interact. And um, I, I like The Shape of Water. I think that's a, a sweet movie, not not a great movie, but it's a sweet movie. Yeah, I always think it's weird that that's the one that got the most like awards. Yeah, like the most critical acclaim at awards. Yeah, like it won like, Best Picture. They really should have been very Labyrinth. What we do? Anyway. Uh, anyway, we're we're but, down to our last two. Yeah. Um, well, I'm I'm down to my last one. I meant our last two total. Oh, okay. Uh, and I and I would be surprised if we picked the same film. Okay. Um, I picked a Polish movie. I did not. So there you go. Okay. <laughs> well, I, I picked a, a Polish movie that was made in France. Ah. Uh, and it was the first part of what was going to be a series of three movies uh, about the three colors of the French flag. Oh. Uh, Krzysztof uh, Kieslowski, Polish yes. filmmaker. One of the great filmmakers. Uh, absolutely. Period. Um, wonderful. Uh, he, he did two wonderfully gr- uh, wonderful projects, uh, like film cycles in his career. One was The Decalogue. Mm. I highly recommend The Decalogue. It was originally a TV miniseries, yeah, right? But uh, it, was about, it was a series of films about each of the Ten Commandments. That's right. Uh, yeah, ten... Each short film, uh, different characters in each one, was de- each one was devoted to a different one of the Ten Commandments. Yeah. Uh, the Fifth Commandment, Thou Shalt Not Kill, hmm. was expanded into a film, into and I think it was called like a short film about killing in oh, yeah. theaters when it was released. Uh, eventually, they ran them in theaters all at once, and then they also ran them on TV. Yeah. Uh, wonderful uh, series of movies. You can get them in a Criterion box set. Uh, he also did a series of three films about the three colors of the French flag, blue, white, and red. Mm-hmm. The correct uh, way to say it. Not red, white, and blue like Americans do. No, don't, don't listen to Americans. We're not good at much of anything. I just remember when uh, uh, the, the, that first season of Star Trek Next Generation when they really insisted <laughs> oh that Jean-Luc Picard was French. Uh, we assure you. Uh, there's a bit where he's like, ah, yes. 
blue, white, and red. The correct way to say the colors. The way the French do. He was weirdly nationalistic for like a few episodes in the first sep- in the first season, well, and then they just dropped that all together. Well, they wanted to stress that he's French, because he's clearly yeah. being played by a British man. Yeah, I don't know why they bother, but anyway. But uh, the three colors of the fr- French flag re- represent three of... Uh, Sort of the French uh, qualities, national qualities: uh, uh, liberté, égalité, mm-hmm. fraternity, liberty, equality, and fraternity. Yeah. Um, blue is about liberty, but it's not about liberty in the way you think. It's not a political yeah. movie. In fact, it's a movie about mourning. Uh, Juliette Binoche plays a woman who, prior to the start of the movie, loses her husband in a car accident, mm-hmm. and it is about her not her grieving process, but her very careful and very contemplative emotional exploration of herself. Hmm. She's clearly suffering and she's clearly very alone. That's where the liberty comes in. She's Hmm. by herself for the first time. And she's wrenched in and weighed down by this great heavy sadness that's just sort of infused everything in her life. And the film has a lot of low sustained shots of her just sort of like moving very slowly through spaces but it's like she's discovering the world for the first time again. Um, one of her first acts is she calls uh, an old uh, friend of hers who she knows has always been in love with her. Mm. And she says, come on over, we're having sex. Because I know you've always wanted to. And she's just trying to see what, maybe, what, what, that, right? what that does for her. Yeah, And it turns out that was sort of a friendly thing we did, but no. That's not going to happen. That's not going to do it for me. Yeah. And it... The movie very slowly, uh, without really being about any one thing, Mm. starts to see her slowly have this kind of emotional catharsis of who she is as a human being. It's not that she takes up a hobby. Mm. It's not that she starts doing something dramatic. It's just that she starts to see the world in a new light and come to peace with the way it is. It's almost an opera Mm. in that it's a story told through emotions rather than events. Yeah. And that is, that takes a certain kind of master, masterful filmmaking to do. Yeah. To give you an entire arc of a character told only through emotional beats while taking away anything that might be considered, like, plot. Yeah. Because there isn't really a plot to Blue. Hmm. I've actually never uh, seen Blue. You haven't seen Blue? No, I haven't seen Blue. Have you, have you seen White and Red? I've seen Red. Okay, Red was, like, the acclaimed one. Red was the one he was nominated for the one Academy has, Award for, yeah. It's also the one that has, like, the most stuff going on in it. Like, yeah. it has the most plot. It's, I have seen other Kieslowski films, though. He did one okay. that was called, like, The Cameraman? Right. Or something. It's just about a guy who gets, like, a little, you know, home movie camera back when they were still running on film. And he just slowly, without even fully mm-hmm. realizing it, becomes more and more interested yeah. in cinema and cinematic storytelling. And... Yeah, it's just about like the power. Like, we, we, there's so many like kind of like the Fablemans or Hugos out there about like people like romanticizing movies, and no, it's just about a guy who just uses it to that. That's his art in the yeah. way that like someone who's painting in the park would. Mm-hmm. And it's a really beautiful and wonderful film. Um, so I've seen some of okay. Kieslowski's work. I have nothing but respect for him, but I've never seen Blue. Anyway, yeah, um, yeah, but Blue Blue is really really wonderful. There's. There is a something does happen in the movie, but I, I don't really want to say what it is because no, it kind of like gently kind of sneaks up on you. But there's another character in the movie that plays a really uh, sort of role, and this character is connected mm-hmm. to her husband in a, in a certain way. And then eventually um, they team up in the Avengers. That they they team up and they start robbing banks. Ooh. 
There are no bank robberies in the movie Blue. Bummer. But it's it's uh, maybe the best film of 1993. Yeah. Uh, and it's... When I saw it, I saw it as a unit. I, I didn't see these movies until all three had already come out, and I kind of watched them all at once. I saw Blue, White, and Red. I saw them in order. Sure. Oh, interesting. Are they supposed uh, to be seen in that order, or does it really matter? Well, they're connected thematically, right. and when you get to... Uh, when you see White, Juliette Binoche has a cameo on White. So it's okay. the same so they are So they are in, uh, in the same... Yeah, like there's, there's yeah. a scene in Blue where she's walking through a courthouse, and she opens the door and peeks in and looks into the wrong room, and she goes to the next one. In White, you see her peek in, and we get to see what's happening in that courtroom. Oh, that's fun. So there's, that's, that's, the, only, that's the only real connection. But is there anything in Red? Uh, and in Red, there's, yeah, there's like some, some other, some other cameos from... I haven't seen Red from, in so The characters long, from Blue and White also show up in Red. That's fun. Uh, yeah, and White is, uh, Julie Delpy is in that one, but it's about uh, her, she and her husband are breaking up and he can't stand that. He doesn't yeah. want to, to let her go, even though she's very insistent and does, does and says things to deliberately hurt him. Right. And then uh, Red is about a, a model and how she discovers um, a, a judge who's also a voyeur and the weird, weird relationship she has with him. Uh it's a really, really wonderful series of movies, and uh, I feel like you probably should watch them all as a unit. Okay. Um, and watch them blue, white, and red in that order. Okay. Not that they'll build upon one another, but you'll kind of come to a greater understanding of what each one's doing if you yeah. see them in order. Well, that's great to hear. All right, well, my number one film, and if you follow me around, and you, you might have heard me talk about this film many a time, because mm. it just so happens, as a total coincidence, uh, my favorite film of all time came out in 1993. Oh, and we've oh, talked about it on the show. We've about, talked yeah. about it on the show a few times. We did an episode of Critically Reclaimed about it, where you finally watched it. Uh, and it is a film uh, from the writer of Schindler's List, so everyone was having a good year. <laughs> uh, Stephen Zalian was his first uh, directorial debut. Uh, and it is a biopic about a young chess prodigy called Searching for Bobby Fischer, but it is not about Bobby Fischer. Mm -hmm. uh, Bobby Fischer is probably the most famous American chess player of all time, maybe the most famous chess player ever. Uh, but he also had a tendency to sort of disappear and vanish for long periods of time, and he was a figure that was very shrouded in mystery. Um, but he was also a young uh, chess wunderkind, and so the idea is everyone's always looking for the next chess prodigy, and the film is about a young boy, uh, played by Max Pomerank, uh, and he just sort of just osmosis figures out what chess is about. And they don't even remember teaching it to him. His parents are played by Joe Mantegna and Joan Allen. Uh, and then they find out that he's not only good at chess, he's amazing at chess. Like, mm -hmm. he's just absolutely, preternaturally understands it as, like, a language. And so they end up getting him uh, a teacher, played by Ben Kingsley, to teach him the proper way to play chess. Meanwhile, his favorite teacher is played by Lawrence Fishburne, and he's a drug dealer who plays chess in the park for money. And, uh... He is torn between four different parents over the course of the movie. He's torn between uh, Ben Kingsley, who wants to just basically sand off all the personality he's got so he can become the most formalist, mm. uh, uh, best version of himself in that very textbook kind of way. Uh, Lawrence Fishburne, who wants to teach him uh, how to be wild and take, and take chances and uh, just do things his own way, throw all caution to the wind. There's his mother who just loves him and wants him to have a good time and wants him to be a kid. And there's his father 
who's an interesting case because at, at first he seems like a really great dad. Mm. He loves his family very, very deeply. He spends time with his kid. And when he finds out his child is a chess prodigy, he supports him and wants him to do great at it. And he helps find him a good teacher. And then gradually he becomes the sports dad without him ever actually realizing it. Mm. Where, he kind of has to come back around eventually. Yeah, right? so he, he becomes the guy who's all about, not about, without even realizing it, he becomes the guy who doesn't care about his son's well-being or growth. He becomes more about his t- helping his son to keep winning. Yeah. Because that's what it's all about. And meanwhile, there's this incredibly rich, textured, kind of laconic kid who just goes wherever, like, the strongest personality in the room tells him to, and he's just trying to figure out who the fuck he is. Searching Robbie Fisher is a really wonderful character study. There's so many incredible scenes in this movie. There's a scene, Laura Linney has one scene in this movie. She plays, uh, That's right. she plays, yeah. uh, she plays the kid's uh, teacher and she's just trying to help him like socialize at school. And Joe Mantegna gives him a speech that you would almost want any father to say about their kid, about just how incredible his son is at something, but he's saying it in exactly the wrong time and exactly the wrong context. And so he becomes the bad guy. It's really complicated. Um, it is a great story about the pressures of genius and expectation. It is a great story about parenting. It's a great story about sports. It's a great sports movie. It treats chess like it's the most exciting fucking thing in the world. <laughs> Part of that is just incredible Whirligig editing. Part of that is James Horner's unbelievably great score. But a lot of it is just they teach you how to care about this thing that before you watch this movie, you might not have given a shit about. Yeah. By the end of this movie, there is an epic chess battle. That is actually incredibly complicated. And even when I was a little kid watching this movie for the first time, I got it. I understood through the language of the cinema what was happening, why it was important, why it was clever, why it was genius, why there was character development happening in the middle of the big climax. Mm. <laughs> we, we interviewed one of our favorite filmmakers once on a podcast, Phil Alden Robinson. And... Uh, he, he's uh, the writer and director of uh, films like Field of Dreams and mm-hmm. Sneakers. Yeah, Sne- Sneakers is a favorite of ours. Sneakers is w- one of the best movies ever made. Field of Dreams is classic as well. He's worked on a lot of great films. I think he's a brilliant writer. Somehow, I forget how it came up, we mentioned Searching for Bobby Fischer, and he was like, that movie is amazing. There's that one bit at the end where they're playing chess, and all of a sudden, Ben Kingsley goes, that was a mistake, and I've never felt more excited in a movie. <laughs> I honestly think there aren't a lot of, like, movies where I can't find a flaw in the film. Like, I can't even, like, oh, you know, if you really think about it, this doesn't make sense, or this performance isn't up to snuff, or there's something about it that hasn't aged well. As far as I'm concerned, Searching Bobby Fisher is a perfect movie. I've seen it over and over and over again, and I've never found anything meaningfully wrong with it. I think it is just expertly crafted from top to bottom. It's incredibly emotional. It's very exciting. I love it to pieces. And if you've never seen it, I really hope you do at some point because it's wonderful. And uh, that is that is my one. I, I'm not surprised. I, <laughs> I, I, know, I know, about I know it a it's, it's a, a big favorite of yours. Uh, you're not that high on it, but you didn't grow up with it. I mean, that doesn't that's got to be part of it. But uh, yeah, even so, was well, well, get, real fast. Like, do you, do you think it's a great movie? Or I, I think it it's it, it's the pinnacle of a a very particular type of uh, drama that I feel like isn't isn't really being made anymore. Interesting. That is a, a, a populist movie for adults. I feel like yeah. those are really rare these days. That's a good point. It's, yeah. it's a yeah movie that is very sophisticated. It's about sophisticated issues. I think a kid can watch it and have a really great time because it does have those yeah. sports movie qualities, but yeah. it's about very uh, 
mature topics. I appreciate it on a different level. Yeah. As, uh, as a so kid, I witness it as through the kids' yeah, eyes, and the older I get, the grumpy. Yeah, and, and I feel like that kind of uh, very carefully constructed, incredibly well acted, uh, insanely well photographed oh, kinds yeah. of uh, dramas. Mm-hmm. Are very rare animals indeed. Uh, so I watched it and I got sort of a rush yeah. for for my my teen teen days when I watched movies that were too old for me. <laughs> yeah. uh, and I I really appreciated. It. I really liked Ben Kingsley's character. I liked Joan Montana as the yeah, father. He's such an unappreciated um, actor. I think because I saw it after I became a father, and yeah. that's kind of what I started to focus on was Joan Montana's character so and the way they were parenting this kid and yeah. sort of how he was pressured rather than my you, heart going out to the kid. Like you can see it, them the doing the wrong thing, but you also know that. They're doing it for kind of the right reasons. Like, yeah, in their yeah. heart, they mean well, but they're fucking up, and you know. Mm-hmm. It's like, it's such good storytelling. Yeah, uh, I'm really interested to rewatch a lot of movies about teenagers and their conflicts with their parents. Oh, that'll be Now that I'm a parent. Yeah. Uh, because I'm I'm certain my perspective has changed on a lot of these movies. Yeah. Uh, how, you know, I used to be on the kid's side, and pretty soon I'm going to be on the adult side. Uh, is there going to come a day when I watch The Breakfast Club, and I think that the principal is doing something right maybe not uh but uh uh, but yeah i i feel like um yeah it's it's really an excellent film i'm I'm not going to criticize it i don't think it's it's bad or anything Mm. i just don't have it in my heart the same way you do i I, I don't think anybody could i recently watched a uh a a movie it's coming it's permitted sundance i'm sure it'll come out eventually uh, called my animal and Mm. it is about uh it's a queer Story about uh, a young person. I, the, the actor is non-binary. I don't know if the character is. All right. Um, but it's a it's a they're it's a werewolf movie. Oh, uh, they're trying to in the 1980s. They're trying to hold back their their werewolfiness. Mm-hmm. But it's of course it's a metaphor for their yeah. queer, queer identity. There's a part in the movie where you know they're young and they really want to like let loose and have a real normal life. But damn it, it's the full moon and they have to get home before midnight before they turn into a monster. And but they go out with their friends anyway and they do drugs. And like oh no, my clock is timer went off. I only have 15 minutes to get home. And I'm watching this and I'm like you know like seriously like 10 years ago. I would have watched this and gone like, yeah, but you know what? Good for you for like trying. <laughs> and I'm watching it now. I'm like, that is so irresponsible. <laughs> I don't even have kids. And I'm just like, that is not my word. No, I'm so, mm, you're grounded. <laughs> you are very grounded for that. That's not yeah, appropriate. Uh, you need to learn not to be more responsible. That's uh, what that I, is. Uh, when uh, Edgar Wright released a film called Scott Pilgrim vs. the World. I yeah. know if I had seen that thing when I was in high school, yeah. probably would have loved it. I yeah. loved uh, how wild those characters were and the really fun and kooky and energetic video game imagery. And But I watched it in my 30s. I'm like, yeah. you're horrible people. <laughs> people in their 20s are terrible. I, I will say this. I will say this. The comics are about them being terrible people. Well, and the comics the, like take place over the, like the, seven the, volumes. The script of the movie is about how they're terrible, but the movie is way too energetic no, for, I, to I, acknowledge. I that. actually think that's actually a really good example of. There's good stuff in that movie, but yeah. I actually think it's an example of kind of a bad adaptation because that story, when you truncate how long it takes place over, because uh-huh. in the books it takes place over like I, I don't know, at least like nine months or a year, like a long period of time. Yeah, the movie's like two weeks or yeah, not the, even that. The movie is about fighting for the basically the, the, the ability to start a relationship with somebody. Yeah. Whereas the books are about fighting for keeping the ability to keep a relationship and having a long-term meaningful relationship and how that takes very different kinds of thinking than it mm. does to just date in your 20s. Um, 
and they both have flaws. I, I loved them when I was younger, and now the more I realize it, the more I realize the movie has serious fucking problems. <laughs> and so and the book does too, but I think it mitigates them better. But mm. anyway, anyway, that is it for our Iron List. Yeah. Um, real fast, let's go through our, our top ten lists in the order in which they were received. Uh, Whitney's top ten was Mike Lee's Naked, another movie that ends in K-E-D. We had Freaked, Heart and Souls, Much Ado About Nothing, The Wrong Trousers, The Nightmare Before Christmas, Dead Alive, Schindler's List, Dazed and Confused, and at the number one spot, Christoph Kieslowski's Blue. Uh, my top ten list, a little different. In fact, there's only one crossover. That's weird. Hmm. My Boyfriend's Back by Bob Balaban, underrated <laughs> film. Uh, the action comedy Demolition Man. Uh, the Capra-esque comedy Dave. Remains of the Day. Kind of sticks out like a sore thumb on this list, doesn't it? Uh, Nightmare Before Christmas. Needful Things and The Dark Half is kind of a double feature. Uh, the original El Mariachi. Uh, Ang Lee's The Wedding Banquet. Guillermo del Toro's Kronos. And Steve's Aliens Searching for Bobby Fischer. Uh, Whitney, do you have any runners-up you want to talk about real fast? Uh, let's see. What do I have on here? Um, as, as I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, there's a huge long list of movies from 93 I, I need to see. But uh, very briefly, uh, Abel Ferrara's Body Snatchers is, is a really excellent uh, remake of the Body Snatchers story. Meg Tilly's um, monologue in that movie is one of the great movie monologues, and she kills it. Oh, she's wonderful in that movie. Yeah. Uh, Joe Dante did a... a Sort of a love letter to William Castle called Matinee. I've never seen that. <laughs> it's really it's it's not William Castle, but, but it's it clearly is. about. Yeah. William. I wish he had just made a biopic of William Castle. I think he wanted to. He probably couldn't. Yeah. So that he kind of did this fictionalized version. Yeah. Uh, uh, Robert Altman's Shortcuts hmm. is is a really wow. fascinating, sprawling kind of a drama. I saw that at maybe far too early in age. Yeah. Um, there's an alien abduction movie that came out that year called Fire in the Sky. Oh, God. <laughs> the last, like, yeah. act of that movie is one of the most traumatizing experiences. Yeah, it, it'll, that'll give you an idea. Like, the first two-thirds are good. Mm. The last half it scared the shit out of an entire generation. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. really worth seeing. I, I saw that with a friend of mine uh, when it in theaters when it came out, and yeah. we were describing it to my, my dad in the car yeah. after he had picked us up, because we're still teenagers, we can't drive. And we're describing some of the things that are happening in that scene, and my friend threw up in the car. Oh, God. It turns out he was feeling really sick, like, most right. of the evening. Yeah, it's just, it just that one thing that But, yeah, we were talking off, about yeah. it, and it just, yeah, he yeah. barfed in the car. Poor guy. Um, yeah. we, we've talked about it a lot. It's a favorite of mine. We did a commentary track for Army of Darkness. Yeah. So I left it off just sort of because I don't want to talk about it again. I'm actually a little uh, surprised you, you didn't, but, yeah, yeah. okay. Yeah. I decided, do I pick Dead Alive or Army of Darkness? I'm not going to do both. I kind of um, suspected that was, the, that was what was going on. Uh, we talked about Fortress already. I like Fortress. Yeah. Uh, we, you talked about Demolition Man. Mm. Uh, there was a really a fascinating documentary called Eileen Warnos, The Selling of a Serial Killer. Oh, I've never seen uh, that. Which was the documentary. Um, uh, Eileen Warnos got a fictionalized version of her life eventually in Monster uh, yeah. about a decade later. Yeah. Uh, when, but yeah, Charlie's the, there in the Academy Award. Yeah, yeah, but the actual story of Eileen Warnos is a little bit more involved in how yeah. she felt she was being exploited by the media, and it's very clear that she's you know mentally ill. Yeah, and how the she's just going to be executed by the state. Yeah. Uh, the state is not allowed to execute mentally ill people, but they're going to do it anyway because it's just it's yeah, it's, it's, it's a kind system. of an, an interesting. Uh, no, I remember, I remember uh, when Monster, damnation of the the death penalty. I remember when Monster came out. I was working at a video store, and they re released that documentary. Well, they made yeah. another one. Oh, they make another one. Yeah, was it a different thing? Kirby or? Dick did one. Yeah. Okay, well, maybe I'm thinking of that one. Anyway, yeah, and uh, and heaven help me, but I do love that Super Mario Brothers movie. I 
could have sworn that was. I almost put that on there. <laughs> because here's the thing, and you've got to make me come around. Because Super Mario oh. Brothers movie, the live action oh. Super Mario Brothers movie with Bob Hoskins and uh, John Leguizamo, John Leguizamo, and Dennis Hopper and Samantha Mathis. Um, it's not a good film, but it might be a great one because <laughs> uh, it. it, it in an attempt mm-hmm. from people who really didn't appreciate the video games for what they were to rationalize uh-huh. the completely irrational ideas within mm-hmm. the Super Mario Brothers video game. Yeah. They came up with something so fucking weird that you almost have to be impressed. Uh, I, I, that's what I admire about Super yeah. Mario. Because uh, the... I saw it when I was young, yeah. and the complaint I heard from peers was, that's not like the game. And I'm like, no shit. Yeah. What is a movie like the game going to look like? The The game is an acid trip. It's insanity. Well, that's kind of what you, we uh, wanted. Yeah, well, if you get, if you hire Alejandro Jodorowsky to do a Super Mario <laughs> Bros. movie, I'm in. All right, that would have been amazing. I'm but, <laughs> even 90s Jodorowsky, when he was doing shit no, like the Rainbow you're, you're not wrong. That would have been pretty uh, fucking amazing. I'm not going to lie. So, yeah, they, they took some of the iconography, and they're... Mm. they're trying to wrap their somebody's trying to wrap their heads around it yeah and they came up with this really strange interdimensional dystopian movie yeah. about <laughs> evolved dinosaurs that look like people it has more in common with blade runner than it does with yeah. super mario that's yeah, really fucking weird and, but again I, I kind of i kind of admire it, it it's absurd it's silly it's got weird monsters there there's a person that's also a fungus yeah. in the movie uh they have like de-evolution machines that turn yeah. people into these giant um monster goomba things like you do uh Something about the audacity and the bold artificiality of it. Yeah. There's there's just so much. Uh, it's it's not joy. It's like they're they're taking the path of most resistance. That's the thing. They did not to, take the easy yeah. way out. They made it the weirdest, yeah, to, most complicated thing they could uh, possibly do, and it wasn't even what we wanted. <laughs> they just went off and did their own fucking thing. It's so fucking weird. Like somebody who was either not familiar with Super Mario Brothers or had no idea how to make it into a movie. Yeah. Uh, were tasked with this project. Yeah. Like, make a Super Mario Brothers movie. And their idea was, well, shit, what can we do? And that's what they did, and I think that's as good as we could get. Yeah. Uh, they're making another Super Mario Brothers movie. It's an animated movie, which means it actually uh, can look like just the games. Yeah. And, the video, be okay. and the video games have advanced to the point where uh, they can actually, they look like they exist in 3D space now. Yeah, yeah, they've been doing uh, that for a while. In 1993, what was the newest game? It was the one on the Super Nintendo at that point. I think it was Super Mario World, actually. Because remember yeah, they had the Super they, Nintendo one. Yeah, so they, how was, uh, that was one where they, cause they had Super Scopes in the movie. The Super Sc- oh, that's right. And, yeah. and, and Yoshi was in the movie. Yeah, so it was, a, it was Super Mario yeah. World around that time, yeah. Yeah, now, now they sort of exist in the sort of cartoony 3D space anyway. Now yeah. they're just making a movie out of it. Well, whatever. But here's the thing. I don't care who Mario is. I'm not interested in Mario as a character. Mario's not a character. Mario is a thing you control. Mario is a, a Mario is a logo. Uh, yeah. Mario, Mario is Mario is, is has as much personality like, as the Noid. Okay? Well, He's just, just like Mickey Mouse. Like yeah. he doesn't have a, a Well character. Mickey Mouse actually the, the new cartoons he has a character. Okay. Well Ma- Admittedly, yeah, they, but, they came around on Mickey. They finally made Mickey Mario more. doesn't have a, a spectrum of moods is my point. No, not really. No. And he has no he has and no the, what does he want? Mario Besides Mario. besides <laughs> to save the princess or or to win a go-kart race what does he want? What is his What is his goal? What is his purpose? What does he lack? <laughs> like, there's, there's not, he doesn't have anything. I'm, I'm sure they'll add something, but like, it's kind of like, that's not why we, 
do Mario. We do Mario because we like the game mechanics and it's colorful. Here's my theory. He's running from something dark in his past. That's why he's always going to the right and not to the left. (laughs) Something behind him that he can't go back to. Uh And uh, you'll notice eventually some ghosts started appearing around him. And the ghosts can only approach when he's not looking. That's true. When he looks at them, they hide. Uh Do you think that there were more than two Mario brothers? I mean, what do you think the boo is the ghost of? I assume what there was a ghost of, of a bomb. Not a bomb. Uh, uh, it looks like a ghost of a bu- bullet, uh, bullet guys. The, the, the bullets? Yeah, remember the bullets? You, you, kill, like you the kill, bullets. kill a bullet and it's soul. I don't know out. what they fucking are. I will say this. I think it's I think it's like the uh, the other members of the Mario family. You've mentioned this before. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, and, I'm, and I'm totally like, whatever. <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> that, 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 that's... Here's what I... I, I don't get high often, but that's, that's my getting high thought. Here's, here's what I will actually say, and this is such a tangent, but whatever. Yeah. Here's what I will actually say about Super Mario. And here's the only thing I actually do kind of care about when it comes to that new because maybe it'll be good i don't know it's mm-hmm. fine um, i'll give it a fair shake but the one thing that kind of bugs me about not only getting chris pratt but apparently not getting chris pratt to do an italian accent how many chubby italian heroes do we have yeah chubby italian american with facial hair we don't got a lot okay it was mm. it's kind of just it was super mario or big lou albano like those were like the two we had and they were the same guy mm. so it kind of bugs me that we're un-italianizing him a little it's, bit it's yeah and, and, they, and, they, and they kind of slimmed him down too yeah, like, a little bit yeah, something i liked on. about mario it's like he's a hero but he's like a little fat guy Bob that's Austin fun, wasn't yeah. bad casting i'll say no, that right now like, he's not very italian but whatever yeah. i was letting it slide My, mario brothers plummet i'm kind of from england i let it go anyway i like his american accent anyway actually. we, we Back on top of well, my my runners up. Right. I'll make it as quick as I can. Uh, I don't think I've ever mentioned Adam's Family Values. Great comedy. I I thought it was a bit of cliche. You, you, you talked about it a little bit. I, yeah. I, I kind of thought you were going to put it on your list. Mm-hmm. I took a I took a gamble. It didn't pay off. Uh, Army of Darkness is on my uh, runners up as well. Uh, we mentioned this I think when we did a podcast about the most '90s movies of the '90s. But Airborne <laughs> doesn't get much more '90s than the movies Airborne, which by the way concludes with an amazing rollerblading race, mm. like a, a down. Uh, uh, like a hill called it's... the Devil's Backbone. Oh, interesting! Really weird. Total coincidence. It's really weird. Um, great movie. I don't. I think it's no longer needs to be celebrated in order to get like its audience. So I didn't feel the need the need to put it on my top ten. But Matt, Batman: Mask of the Phantasm. Uh, it's one of the two best Batman movies, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, let's see here. A Bronx Tale. You hadn't seen it, but great fucking movie. Robert De Niro directed it, based on a play by Chaz Palminteri mm-hmm. uh, about a kid who's torn between his like working class father and a mafioso who lives in his neighborhood who kind of takes him under his wing. Just really, really good, solid, character-driven mafia movie. Um, let's see, I Fire in the Sky as well. Uh, the Fugitive came very, very close to my top ten. I like the Fugitive. I think the Fugitive was just one of the best old-fashioned blockbusters that isn't trying to like pander to kids. Mm. You, know, you said to yourself it's kind of like an um, search for Robin Fisher's movie for adults. Yeah. So is the Fugitive. In fact, yeah, so is um, the Firm, which is also on my runners up. Um, <laughs> I, I do. <clears throat> Not a great movie, but a great yeah. pot boiler. Uh, yeah. Along similar lines, also in the line of fire, it was a really mm. good year for thrillers. Yeah. Just old-fashioned mm-hmm. Hollywood thrillers. Uh, the Joy Luck Club is really really great. Please see the Joy Luck Club. Uh, Jurassic Park is really, really great, but you don't need me to tell you that. Oh, you know, uh, I didn't mention Jurassic Park. Or... We, we mentioned it when you talked about Schindler's List, but you didn't mention yeah, it like, in your runners-up. Uh, Loaded Weapon 1 genuinely holds up. 
Uh, it's been a long time since I, I laughed at I laughed at it when I was a, a uh-huh. teenager. But yeah, I'm... a couple of years ago, I did a I did an article where I reviewed every single National Lampoon movie not recommended, and I was really nervous about getting to National Lampoon's Loaded Weapon because I hadn't seen it since the nineties. A shocking number of the jokes still land. <laughs> okay. Like, it's really quite funny. Um, a movie that, it, it's a comedy, but it doesn't really make me laugh, but I love it anyway. Mad Dog and Glory. Oh, okay. You ever see Mad Dog and Glory? I Mad Dog and Glory. Mad Dog and Glory. Uh, uh, Robert De Niro plays a cop who, uh, I think he saves the life of a mafioso played by Bill Murray. And uh, Bill Murray decides, like, as a thank you, uh, he lets his girlfriend, played by Uma Thurman, like, be Robert De Niro's girlfriend but Robert De Niro doesn't just want to have sex with her like they end up like kind of liking each other a lot and it becomes like a really complicated character piece interesting it's a really good movie people don't talk about it enough um, along similar lines Malice is a great thriller as well <coughs> excuse me I apologize um, let's see Robin Hood Men in Tights is stupid but very very funny Sleepers in Seattle is a very good romantic comedy So I Married an Axe Murder is an even better romantic comedy very funny movie uh, let's see here. Bah, 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 bah. Wrong Trousers is on my runners-up. Dead Alive was on my runners-up. Groundhog Day was on my runners-up. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see here. Bah, 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 bah. Fortress is on my runners-up. Cool Runnings is on my runners-up. It's not an amazing movie, but it's about as good as that live-action Disney era got. Uh-huh. I've mentioned it a bunch of times, Man's Best Friend. <laughs> yeah. uh, one of the best stupid horror movies of the early 90s. Robot Dog. Yeah, and then there was a pair of... I'm, 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 I'm so mad because like I can't... like. I'm so mad at him. I can't really watch my movies right now. But there were two really good Johnny Depp movies that came out that year. One is What's Eating Gilbert Grape. Okay. Uh, which is a legitimately very, very good movie. And a very, very funny and very sweet romantic comedy called Benny and June. So, Benny and June is a sweet one. Yeah. <clears throat> so if you can still stomach watching Johnny Depp based on what we now know um, about you mm. know, him being an asshole um, and, and, you know, abusive, uh, those are great movies and I recommend them. And if yeah. you can't, fair enough. Anyway, um, that is... It for the Iron List. Yeah, let's wrap this sucker up. Uh, next time on the Iron List, uh, if you head on over to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network, where you can listen to a whole bunch of exclusive shows, you can also vote for future episodes of the Iron List. All of our patrons, even $1 a month, get to vote. And for the month of February, your options are the best movie series ever, where we'll talk about the entire series as a whole, not just our favorite installments of it. The best video game movies. You want to hear us talk about Super Mario some more. And a lot of other video game movies as well. That one's interesting because there aren't that many good ones. So that should be interesting to talk about. Uh, The best mockumentaries. Movies in the documentary style that are not actually documentaries. And there's a lot of different ones in different types. And then uh, lastly, uh, the best Los Angeles movies. Wendy and I are both Los Angeles natives. We have strong opinions about movies that are set in Los Angeles and how they treat the city. And how it's very various... Uh, uh, aspects uh, and we would love to talk about that if you would like us to talk about it those are your options for next month haha choose wisely <laughs> well done <laughs> anyway thank you everybody for listening thank you everybody for joining us uh, feel free to send us an email our email address is letters at critically acclaimed.net if you want to talk about anything we discussed in this episode some movies we may have forgotten about uh, you want to ask us any question whatsoever we're open books just send it along and uh, we also have a P.O. box for people who prefer to write letters the old-fashioned 1993 way. Whitney, what is their P.O. Box? Send us uh, an actual physical letter to the Critically Acclaimed Network. P.O. Box 641565, Los Angeles, California, 90064. We are on Twitter, at Critic Acclaim. I am at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. And as always, that's the list. 
Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.